out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Nick Evans, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, he founded Elemental Records and also was part of Alternative Tentacles and had a partnership with One Little Indian, but during his squatting time in Leeds used to put on bands at the Duchess, the Duchess in Leeds, indeed he did. Anyway, look, this is the conversation. You're going to learn a lot, so take notes. I will test you at the end. So, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that fascinating subject that was the early formative years. Nick, tell us more, tell us everything. I did, I did. I can, I mean, I'm, I was born in 68, so my parents were really into music. So they were they were sort of working class people from Caerphilly, Singhenith and Swansea. So uh, very sort of poor, really. Um, but they both sort of left their working class roots and identities by becoming Francophiles and French lecturers at Cardiff University. So they were friends with Georges Brassens and um, Jake Thackeray and... Um, lots of French singers, Barbara, and um, uh, I grew up with a lot of kind of Leonard Cohen and Jake Thackeray and Tom Paxton, some right. Bob Dylan. When I was very little, my dad playing Mozart and sort of twirling around the living room and listening to Blue, Joni Mitchell. And um, so there was a lot, and of course, Sergeant Peppers and Get Stoned, which was a, a double Rolling Stones, early Rolling Stones record. Yes. Um, I think I went off to see um, with my dad, Tom Paxton and Leo Sayer, um, very, very sort of early things, when it, concerts when I was probably not even eight or something, you know? And then when I was 11, um, let me think, my dad's friend, Hank Coombs, who was one of the lecturers, an American lecturer at Cardiff University, took to, I love the clash, you know, I had, um, I'd given enough rope and I had, well, Ziggy Stardust and I had It's Alive, the Ramones double album and Devo and I think X-Ray Specs, who I'd seen on Top of the Pops, Day the World Turned Dayglo and Early Stranglers. And I think I saw the Clash on the 16 Tons tour, supported by Mikey Dread, when I was 11. I saw the Jam on um, the Setting Suns tour and the Stranglers on the La Folie tour. Right. Before I before I was 12 at Sophia Gardens. Nobody <laughs> believes me now. I I did another another interview and I mentioned that, and a bunch of people in the comments was like, "Oh, that guy's a big bullshitter." But it's, <laughs> it's true, you know. I. I I went off on, on Hank Coombs's shoulders and watched The Clash doing a lot of the London Calling material. Um, but I, I think the first song I ever learned to play on the guitar was You Really Got Me by The Kinks. I had the greatest hits of uh, The Small Faces. Um, I learned to play Ziggy on the guitar on my, I had sort of an Ibanez Les Paul and some homemade, shitty homemade amp, you know. Yes. I learned to play that and, um, I remember Slade very well, very fond of Slade. I think that 
you know, I think I had Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. I had the Grease soundtrack. Um, so there was a lot of music. And I remember saying to my mum and dad when I was sort of maybe six or seven, I want all the music. I want <laughs> all the music. It was ferocious. Right. It was not, it was not, um, so it was non-negotiable. I was like a, like a junkie or something, you know, I just couldn't. That's amazing. I mean, your amazing. Your parents were so hip to the groove, actually. On this, they were. They were. They were nice. You know, they were good to me, and they were so kind of um, supportive. You know, I got this band together, Slaughter Tradition, at the age of sort of thirteen or something, and uh, and my dad, you know, he lent me eighty quid to to hire out the pageant rooms in Panath so that Kukul and Flux of Pink Indians and Chumbawamba and my band could play. He would drive me to all the gigs. You know, um, with the drums in the back of the Datsun Cherry. And, um, you know, my mum my mum left the house for a few days, but my dad stayed when Flux and Chumbers all stayed at the house. And, and I remember going to Crass's last ever gig in Aberdeer. And my dad took me and Sudo and Sado. Sudo played as a poet, um, a trans a trans poet, actually, maybe the first trans person I ever met. But, I would have uh, thought that was very, yes. You yeah, it was right. very, very, very early days. And, <laughs> and my dad came in, watched the last Crass gig and hung out afterwards. And we um, we chatted with Penny and uh, all of them, really, for hours afterwards before my dad drove us home. Oh, Matthew God. And Matthew, the bass player from Slaughter Tradition, still runs... Um, Tangled Parrot Records in Carmarthen and a new one in Swansea to maybe one of the greatest record shops I've ever been to with one of the most sort of gifted curators of music I've ever met and he just released my album which I don't know if you had a chance yes, to Yes, I uh, did. I, I, gave, it a, I gave it a play, to. which was, um, yes. Well, well, thank you very much for listening <laughs> to it. You know, I was a bit late to the party, but um, <laughs> I, I had to do it for Morgan, really. You know, it was, uh, yes. it was for, for my boy. But um, So were your, were your parents political? I mean, you know, because I'm thinking you, you're yeah. so, you, you, you know, as the 80s progressed, you know, we had that great period, didn't we, where things, the, the kind of the the 70s, you know, I still felt quite very young in the 70s, so the news was just an abstract thing, but you got the kind of idea that, the, you know, there was a different prime minister on a regular basis, yeah. you know, well, a yeah. different party in, in sort of power, and then that would change. And then 79, obviously, things suddenly stuck, and it hasn't really felt like it's changed since. So, um, you know, the Thatcher years, and then we obviously yeah. had the... The, the Falkland, the the miners strike, Green and Common, and then Red Wedge. So you were a little bit. Oh, you would have probably just started to catch Red Wedge before the the great sort of anti poll tax league suddenly kicked yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, my dad was. They were. We were all Labour people. My grandfather was a sort of liberal, um, but my dad and my mum were strong. Labour people, it was all the Guardian round our house, you know, because <laughs> the Guardian was sort of an identity as much as it was a sort of um, newspaper, you know, and I think that a lot of people from our generation, you know, identified with the Guardian. I'm not so keen anymore, actually, but um, it's a bit, a bit sort of the, the, the root of the doom scrolling, I think, starts with the Guardian now. But at the time, <laughs> it was all coal, not dole, and we were, we were, I was very, very active in CND and I remember after that um, clash gig that uh, I went to you know it was very clear that Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League were 
where it was at, you know. So my dad took me to a uh, an anti-Nazi league meeting in Cardiff, and uh, which was followed by a troops out of Northern Ireland. And so my dad was sort of quite supportive, really, of me being a little kind of radical kid. Yes, um, I mean this is very, this is quite, you know. It was good. Been... It was it was good. I was sort of clear. But I remember going to a Joan Ruddock doing a. You remember Joan Ruddock? She was the leader of the. Um, the, the the CND for a long time, oh, I think yes, yeah. Labour politician as well. And she did a talk at Cardiff University and me and all the class war conflict horrors, you know, all these, <laughs> all these sort of little bastards showed up and started saying, shouting, you know, it's not just nuclear weapons that need to be got rid of, it's all weapons, you know, that we need to demilitarise the world. And we were really sort of quite violent really you know they were they were sort of we were really willing to to go the whole distance you know and it just sort of kept going really you know ne never mind conflict there were thousands of us and it, we were really up for it yes Let, let's have a proper revolution come on <laughs> <laughs> um which as i said you know when i was sort of on my own i didn't really have those tendencies because there was a lot of tough kids at school and I got my nose broken a few times for being a, a big puff you know <laughs> having wearing eyeliner and having lots of hair and all that you know and and being into the cure and Adam and the ants or whatever it was at the time and um so there was a lot of getting getting duffed up but when there was a big group of us on the poll tax in London or yes. or you know trying to take on the fascists in Leeds in Lands Lane with a couple of chumbers there and a bunch of other sort of nutters around <laughs> with spiky hair. You know, we were we were a lot stronger together. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and that idea that, you know, being anarchy, peace and freedom and being a pacifist just wasn't going to work and things had gone too far and, that you know, it's our world too and we're really going to put our money where our mouths are and show up and not leave it to... The next generation you know it was time to really yeah so it's why in a way I had a sort of soft spot for I didn't like conflict very much but I understood how they'd arrived at that conclusion yes I absolutely so as the as the 80s trucked on did you leave school at 16 or did you yeah, still all of it all of it I was just a nutter mate <laughs> <laughs> it was just I, I moved to Cardiff with a bunch of sort of punky people the band broke up, my little band, after our one demo cassette, The Passion Revolt, which you can find bits and bobs from on YouTube if you have yes. a sniff around, you know. Um, really, really influenced by the mob, you know. So that my heart was sort of broken then because the band had gone and, and Matt, who I've been talking about, and Tom, they both went off to university to up north. Uh, Matt went to Huddersfield University and he was sort of getting more into Gong and Hawkwind and being a sort of a bit more of a crusty traveller. And there was sort of um, that that side of it was sort of dragging him off. Yes. Um, so did so when did you or did you have your first Glastonbury in the sort of 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was off to uh, me and Fish. Who, who's, who's still a very good friend of mine, or his name's Richard, actually, um, who's the bass player from Icons of Filth. He was the guy that um, introduced us all to being vegan and hunt sabbing. So we used to go off, yes. we lived in Cardiff. And, and you know, Fish would drive us out. He had a van, his, his parents were bakers and had a bakery in 
somewhere somewhere in the valleys and we used to go up and go hunt sabbing with him and we were part of the Cardiff hunt sabs but then he would say oh come on let's go off to we went to um what was it not um not Greenham Common to um a couple of sort of Stonehenge but not Stonehenge festivals um because the wind, the Windsor festivals had been gone, hadn't they? Yeah, um, I hadn't. I didn't get to the Windsor festivals. I was sort of definitely after that. It was around Greenham Common time, and we went off to. It wasn't Menwith Hill. Where the where the hell was it? It was near uh, Avesbury, Amesbury Festival, and we went to try and go to Stonehenge, but it was just as the Battle of the Beanfield and all mm -hmm. that stuff was going on. So we parked up outside Stonehenge with with about. 50 other vans and ended up going to some other thing. And then we broke into Glastonbury a couple of years running through the fence. And Yes. Um, so when, when was your first Glastonbury? I think it must have been sort of 88 or 89, you know, or 80. It wasn't 87 then. It might have been. I don't know. You know, I was a bit <laughs> nervous about this interview because I thought he's going to ask me for, you know, all the all these sort of. I listened to Kaz Brown, who I used to know, who's good friend of um, good friends of Lawrence. You know, me and Lawrence were very close for years. You know, and um, Kaz, the drummer from the Senseless Things. You know, Kaz was one of Lawrence's crew, yes. sort of Putney crew. And I just listened to Kaz, and he had this sort of photographic memory and he was talking about all sorts of dates and people and the number of the house and all this I was like Jesus Christ <laughs> I hope I hope he doesn't ask me that level of detail because you know if you can remember the 80s you, you weren't there you weren't there Kat. I just wanted I wondered if you would try to go and see Huskadoo in the afternoon yeah I saw them I saw I saw Huskadoo I was there it was, was it was there. it was eight, it was eight, it was eighty seven. You went. Did me you and Zippy, me and Zippy, dancing to Huskadoo with a bunch of other nutters at eleven o'clock in the morning until some bestudded punk got his stud caught in my eyebrow, and I sort of covered in blood dancing to New Day Rising or whatever it was. You know, some Huskadoo classic with Zippy. Just me and Zippy were the only. But I'd seen them at Stowhill Labour Club in Newport. Right. With the butthole surfers very early as things started to transition into a more kind of hardcore, uh, which was my scene for years in Leeds. And um, and I remember Huskadoo and my my sort of my forehead being dragged along. Um, <laughs> and yeah, me and a few of the Leeds people really sort of understood some of that early hardcore. Um yeah, we were we were sort of definitely shifting from Amiga Tribe and Peni and and all of that into a more US influence thing. But I, I thought that that was later. Um, oh, Huskadoo was eighty seven. Eighty seven. Yeah. Well, I was there. Yeah, I remember it very well, and they were fantastic. Actually, they. Yeah. Yes, I wondered if uh, yes, that was that was the Friday afternoon. That was my first Glastonbury. I thought, I wonder if you were there as well. Yeah, I was. I remember somebody feeding me mushrooms and, you know, just <laughs> I mean, really losing all sense of. Um... So when did you make the move to Leeds? Did you or did you not make the move to Leeds? Around that time, because I was with Zippy in 87 at Glastonbury um, watching Huskadoo. So I must have been in Leeds by 87. Um, just as sort of. Because, you know, Chumbawamba had a lot of a, a big effect on a lot of us because they were, they were sort of, in a way, not towing the, the crass. I mean, I visited Dial House a few times at that yes. point and 
I really loved Crass's sort of, well, that, you know, I, I read Knots by R.D. Lang. <laughs> I read, you know, interesting, strange books and listened to, I don't know, maybe I listened to did you, did you read Benjamin any... Britten because of Crass, because right. I, I'd read an interview with Penny where he said, you know, actually, I don't listen to punk at all. No, he I loves jazz. Yeah, well, he, but he loved a lot of classical music as well. And, you know, I, I, I heard John Coltrane because of Penny and, you know, and, and read Kerouac because of Penny, you know, and, and I always really loved Penny and G and all of Crass, really. But the fact that they had this sort of avant-garde, um, bohemian beatnik roots and the yes. whole story about, you know, the Windsor Free Festivals and um, Wally, Wally yeah. Hope and all of that really, really, really attracted me. And, and when I, we went up to Leeds for the first time, me and Sado Monaliki Huron, who was part of the, the Doe family uh, <laughs> that I mentioned earlier on, who'd all taken this name um, and, and were sort of all kind of dancing around being trans and genderless and all this sort of stuff quite early on. We love Poison Girls and all that, but in Leeds, there seemed to be in a way, a much more sort of advanced squatting community. I went to Bristol a few times. Um, and like I say, we played at the demolition uh, ballroom and I was into Amoebics, heavily into Amoebics because they had this sort of slightly hippie yes. element to, to, to their thing, to smart pills and, all these sort of um, uh, sub Hawkwind bands, and but but the the scene in Bristol was a bit scary. I got offered a job at Suma Whole Foods, so that was one option to go and work for Suma. And we like their vegan margarine, so I was like, oh, maybe them. I should go. Maybe I should go and work for Suma Whole Foods. But actually, the people I know in Bristol, there was a lot of glue bags around, right, and a lot of people getting pretty dark quite early on and and even though I was susceptible and interested in the psychedelic end of things it all looked a bit sad to me but when we went up to Leeds and Huddersfield and Bradford just as the the Manhattan Club and and the one in 12 was beginning and all of this stuff which I helped sort of put the roof in one of the floors of the one in 12 club and we were quite involved in the one in 12 but Leeds was very organized and these, yes. th these cities, York, Huddersfield, Bradford, Leeds, even down to Sheffield and um, Bradford and uh, Halifax. And then lots of people moving down from Darlington and um, Dan and, and, and all the guys from Generic. I joined Generic later on, who was sort of, um, uh, you know, buddies with the electro hippies and Napalm and all that sort of era of things. But they were just very well organized and Chumbers were living in this huge house and they had a rehearsal room, a printing press. They were great. They were great. They, I wouldn't say they were great musicians, but they were very <laughs> creative people. Yes. And a right. lot of, they were sort of already writing pamphlets and, and listening to really, really interesting music and good conversations and, and involving themselves with the other lead squatters and lots of organization. We used to, we used to run a little fanzine called Leeds Other Paper. Oh we my did... God, that's amazing. Yes. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't Leeds Other Paper actually. Leeds Other Paper was published by our sort of predecessors. This was 
the other paper or what the fuck, what was it called? We published it for a long time. I told you my memory isn't what it was, but uh, we used to cut out the TV schedule from the Radio Times and put it in there along with a bunch of, you know, we're going to, you know, vote nobody. Nobody cares for you. Nobody's going to change the country. Nobody's going to. And 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 organize kind of demonstrations and, and actions through this paper. Yes. Um, and Chumbers was sort of a bit involved in that. And the organization, the squatting, we had a great house, number one, Birchett Grove. And, you know, one of the guys from the Apostles lived there. And there was Andrew Bales, who took the photograph that made Banksy very famous, which, yes. is, which is, as I told you, me throwing a kind of fake petrol bomb in a disused warehouse with uh, my friend Becky and Dallas, who took all the photographs of that period. You can you can track down a lot of the my amazing... God. Yes. I was just going to say this, that, that name Dallas, there's a really interesting book, which might be downstairs. Shit. It probably is. Anyway, it was about, it was a, oh God, it's, yes. It, that I've, there was a guy who's done a book about all the tribes in the 80s. I mean, I didn't realise there were quite so many, you know. Dallas's like, pictures are in there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I of, heard about that. Of the yeah. of the crusties, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's one on crusties. And That's it's like the all lead. him. That's and him. He, was, he was our little crew. We had a, we had a crew called Flame in Hand. I started, I sort of realised that the anarcho-punk thing was sort of transitioning into a lot of the the early hardcore stuff that was coming from the States. So it was Minor Threat and the Bad Brains, and we were all beginning to listen to Circle Jerks and... Um, what, about Sonic, what about Sonic Youth? That was all much later. So right. that, that happened, but it happened sort of maybe five years, four years after that initial rush of the hardcore stuff, Minor Threat, Dead Kennedys. Yes. You know, so I think everybody realised... You know, Crass had called it a day, you know, Flux had become, you know, Tackhead and, and the Adrian Sherwood thing. So people were looking around. We were, I remember going over to Liverpool and seeing De La Soul and, um, you know, Public Enemy and going to Reading Festival. And maybe it, maybe Sonic Youth had played already. We were listening to Daydream Nation, but really it was that sort of first flush of American hardcore, which was a whole nother level of, musicianship scream and beef eater and um, yes. a lot of the dc stuff um as well as the germs and some of the the west coast things but it was just sort of clear and i went to the states around that time and people were beginning to listen to the happy mondays and the stone roses and um so, so at this stage did you had you taken ecstasy i resisted because a lot of our crew um were selling all their punk records and wearing ponchos and sort of disappearing off to not necessarily the hacienda but some of the early leads orbital some of the early leads techno yes. clubs and i think what was it well i forget the names of some of them um what were they called well some of these leads clubs but i i found it all a little bit suspicious because it seemed to change people so dramatically and people got loved up very fast. And I was still wanting to change the world. And I was still, you know, vegan and into the politics. And we, we ran Flame in Hand and we were putting on everyone really, Naked Reagan, we put Fugazi on, we put Nirvana on, um, at Leeds Poly. 
Were they uh, were they supporting Tad? They supported Tab at the Tad at the Duchess of York, but when we did them, it was um, Nirvana, L7, uh, Victim's was, Family and Arm. Not, um, not Jacob's Mouse. No, they, they were later. They were Gary Weecher, who was another good friend of mine, part oh, of another, yes, another crew. I'm still in was, touch with Gary. Gary's very it, sweet. Because he, he pulled together Silverfish, who I just loved at the time. Yeah, and she was, Leslie was a, an old flame of mine, actually. So, was she? Uh, she Great was, God. Yeah. But this is all later. You've jumped a big, <laughs> uh, a big chunk, you know. Yeah, so so did, when, when did you discover Thatcher on acid? Because I, they, I They were friends from before. They right. were um, they were friends from the Chumbers era. They were around a lot. We used to stay at their house in London. They were they were good friends. I mean, and Ben and Sean, Sean Forbes, who ran Rugger Bugger and was in Watt Tyler, and then Sean and Ben were in um, Hard Skin and all that. And Sean was working at Rough Trade. And and when I first started going to down to London, down to Gypsy Hill, and I lived in Streatham and in Brixton, and was part of that whole with Jamie from Scarfo and. All the people he went on to be Jamie from the Kills with Alison Mosshart and My God, um, the Kills, I yeah. took I took Lawrence from Domino to Jamie's flat for the first time and and you know because I was part of that whole scene really and um, yeah Ben yeah we loved Thatcher on Acid but really the linchpin was Sean Forbes Sean Forbes is the key figure really that that connects all of that. American hardcore stuff, Fugazi. We put Fugazi on a few times. I went to the States and I drove across the States with Hetty from Deconquerent and um, stayed at Discord House and hung out a lot with Ian Mackay and all of all of that scene. Did put- you come across a band called Seven Seven Year Bitch? Yeah, I knew them. I didn't know them personally, but I knew the band. But my my crew really was Fire Party, who were the first sort of all-female DC punk band who I booked a few a tour for. I booked tours for No Means No and Alice Donut and Verbal Assault and Neurosis and um, Shudder to Think, all these bands that were sort of the first era of, well, not the second era of Discord and Alternative Tentacles bands. And I worked for, I started doing booking Peel sessions for a lot of these bands and right. getting them in the Melody Maker and in the Enemy, and that's when I started meeting all the Enemy people and uh, John Peel. Um, and then later, I put out a lot of records myself through Elemental Records, which was. Yes. Um, so but, I started- Shudder, but, but Shudder to think is such amazing that I've done an interview with the leads, sort of bloke. Craig Wedron. Yeah, very talented, very Jesus. talented. So yeah, talented. Amazing, amazing. Yes. So, yeah, so so as the 80s progressed, because obviously you didn't sort of embrace the world of indie pop, did you, with the Smiths? and? Yeah, I, I mean, they came later. I loved I loved R.E.M. I loved the shop assistants. I loved um, particularly, um, it was always a bit more American for me, but um, I knew the field mice and I knew, you know, Sean was into a lot of um, Tallulah Gosh and uh, all of these kind of, but for me, I didn't, I didn't love it. I loved the shop assistants, actually. Yes. They were really, really good. And uh, I knew the poo sticks because they were from Wales and um, I knew some of that stuff but i definitely gone off more into hardcore and booking yes, well, these there's, tours there's, for all these because amelia and um who from the poo sticks have got this one called the swansea sound they did a collaboration i, didn't I they? just i just met him a couple of months ago i was in swansea a uh, matthew's shop and matthew said 
I'll go get Hugh and brought Hugh in. And me and Hugh spent sort of three hours <laughs> discussing all the people that we had in common and all the stories. He knew another one of my exes, Rachel, from uh, he had a deal. Uh, he had townhouse music who had a deal with Charlie Pinder at Sony. And so, you know, I, I knew Charlie Pinder and my ex worked there um, after she worked at Island Records. So I had a whole sort of trajectory through from sort of a narco punk down to London where I took a job with Alternative Tentacles Records because I booked a lot of their tours right. as, as well as a lot of the stuff from Southern. So I knew all the people at Southern and I knew all the people at Alternative Tentacles, Bill Gilliam and Bill Gilliam had a, a label called uh, Workers Playtime Records, which was connected to Rough Trade. Yeah, he, he had the Higsons and Serious Drinking. Didn't he have Snuff on that? Had, Snuff was later. He had S.E. Right. Roji, who was a great uh, African player, a world music. He had Benjamin Zephaniah. Um, he obviously had all the AT stuff, you know. And and he said, why don't you come and take over Workers Playtime? I'd done a good job with the the tours and I knew all the bands and yes. he was like come down we need you and so uh, Morgan wants to say hi hello Morgan hello. yeah hello <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a he's got a a sangre de muerdago crass t-shirt on nice in that... benefit for the benefit for the uh for the elephants but um yeah Morgan Morgan made me um promise that I'd I'd let you um uh, introduce him, or I, I would introduce him to you. Well, that's so, lovely. No, it's nice. So I started having some indie hits. You know, I had AC Acoustics and Bivouac and Crane, who I'm yes. still very fond of. And um, I was booking, yeah, I was booking teal peel sessions for them and uh, getting them in the Melody Maker and the Enemy, and it was very exciting. And living on the Railton Road with Jamie and uh, Jules from. Um, uh, uh, from Dan and also Mark Gatiss, who went on to do the League of Gentlemen, and right. uh, it was an old friend who I lived with in the squat in Leeds. So we were there was a, quite quite a scene really. And Leslie from Silverfish showed up, and um, there was Sean and Ben from Thatcher and Acid and Watt Tyler, and we were going to see, you know, going to the um, the Falcon a lot and seeing Roger Cowell's bands from um, uh, what was his label called? There was it were Gary from Ouija and Roger. And Lawrence, who had rough neck at the time, and um, Paul from Too Pure, who run the White Horse. In um, so we'd see early PJ Harvey concerts, yes. and Faith Healers, and all those bands. Crane used to come down and play play there a lot. So there was a real sort of transition, and a lot of those the people who ran those labels, that sort of very early '90s scene, um, that was. Too pure Ouija, um, elemental to some degree. Uh, Lawrence's stuff, Midway Still, and uh, Leatherface. All those bands were sort of. It was a sort of a, the next generation because we'd all heard the Pixies at that point. Yes, the and great... so everybody realised, you know, oops, <laughs> <laughs> got to keep up, got to keep up. You know, well, it was kind, there was kind of a huge musical. Well, for me, there was a huge music. Mu musical kind of moment when the Smiths finished in 87 then ecstasy came along and then there was this kind of the dance scene like you know we yeah. mentioned earlier but then you had the Seattle grunge scene that came yeah. along and then you know you had that north north London sort of I suppose my bloody valentine oh you know, yeah Carter which Carter the Stop, unstoppable sex yeah, machine but, but my bloody valentine really 
rearranged everything for everyone, I think. And I have to say, because earlier on, you did mention that you had the ecstasy at this point, and I hadn't, but I moved down to London and, and you know, I mean, a very close friend of mine who was the, the sound engineer for the wedding present, Joe Hickey, who right. accepted a job a bit like me, you know, had got sort of a carrot dangled and ran down to London. Um, and Joe Hickey was already into all that guy called Gerald and 808 State and right. was already, already nipping over to, um, you know, nipping over to Manchester and, and, and the record collections were changing and everybody, oh, have you heard this? And I'm like, oh, God, a million times. Shut up. So you and had he, the, so you had, because there was Bad Moon PR, wasn't there? Anton. Yeah, Ginny and Anton. So he, Anton, be, very sweet. So he sort of had the orb, didn't he? He, he was the, one of the first people promoting the orb. Yeah, that's right. And, and I remember, I have to say Joe Hickey, because he accepted a job um, at Vox magazine, being the picture editor. And, and he was like, oh, you've moved down too. And I was living in Brixton and he was living in Brixton. And he said, uh, well, I'll meet you at Cambridge Circus. Um, we'll have a pint. So I met him at Cambridge Circus and I'd not tried any of this, you know. And, and he dragged me off to a club called Deja Vu, which was underneath heaven. And I'd work the next morning. I was working at Alternative Tentacles at this point. I had my second record coming out, the Bivouac 7-inch or something, you know. And, and he said, oh, come on, I'm going to take you to this place. And I was like, oh, i got to go to work. It's already 10 past 11. He's like, oh, fuck that, come on. And, uh, <laughs> and so I went with Joe Hickey, who we all used to call Hot and Stripey, and he ended up being Super Chunk sound engineer and Yola Tango and Rocket from the Crypt. And we had a long friendship, you know. He was involved with all the American stuff. But he took me underneath sort of three car parks underneath heaven and we ended up in this weird I thought it looked like some weird youth club everything sprayed fluorescent and lollipops on the door and <laughs> you know and I was like what the fuck is this this is some acid house club you bastard you know you know I'm not into all this and um and he said oh it doesn't matter open your mouth and it was because it was Joe I did, you know, and he put some dove or something under my tongue. And like I say, I'd managed to avoid all of that in Leeds. Yeah. And stuck, stuck to my guns, you know, and stuck to the flaming hand thing and all the tours I was booking and all the, the peel session thing and all that. And within sort of 15 minutes, I was raving and I sort of didn't stop really for about four years. <laughs> um, and, and it really did change me and change everything. I ended up, yeah, I ended up sort of with one foot in one camp and another foot in the other, other camp and a bit of a schism in a way of, yeah. in terms of my musical identity. But I loved Underworld. I loved Orbital. I loved the left field record. You know, I went to a lot of those things and met a lot of those people. And there were a lot of people in a way, I think like me trying to sort of, navigate this shift of identity that the the, the the chemicals elicited or or demanded you know and, yeah. and i found i remember tr sort of hanging around in new york with rocket from the crypt at kennedy from mtv's flat with with all of rocket from the crypt trying to explain underworld to them <laughs> and uh, and they were going but it never actually happens it's just, it's a waiting game, Nick. At least rock and roll happens. You know, techno and house music, it sort of, it just teases you for nine hours. And it never gives you what you're looking for. 
Right. And that's why everyone's necking the pills and looking for a, you know, looking for horrible chemicals is because rock and roll gives you what it is that you're after. Rock and roll is the payback, you know, and techno is the never, never. Yes. Oh my God. And I remember it happened quite a few times because I used to hang around with those guys a lot in San Diego and in New York and every new year, new years for, for four years with Rocket from the Crypt or Drive Like Jehu, you know, which is another era, but it was very exciting for me because we had hits, you know, and uh, at the same time I was, I was doing Alabama three, who had the theme music to the Sopranos and were absolute Brixton country and Western acid house kind of gurus in South London, you know, still going 40 years later or something. Amazing. So look, as we, as we trucked over the eighties there, the late eighties, Oh yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, the anti-poll tax, did, did, were you kind of, uh, it sounds yeah, like you, there. you were there. Yeah, I was, you, we were, we were you, you weren't just wearing baggy clothes. No, no, I was, I was down with, with, uh, with Ben and all of them, Sean and all the, all the, you know, people who weren't, afraid of the police you know and um yeah it was a lot of that going on and a lot of um standing up and fighting back and uh, uh and trying to put our money where our, and that whole conflict at uh, the feeding of the whatever it was called that big gig at Brixton Academy I was at that and um Thatcher on Acid and Benjamin Zeff and I played at that actually but yes. um yeah, the, I, the, the we're sort of getting some of the epochs sort of a bit jumbled, which is we, fi- fine <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But um, yes, well, there was just kind of you know, I, I just remember there was that moment which was kind of huge, wasn't it? And yeah, you know, and that suddenly the following year, after a whole decade with Thatcher, you know, she sort of goes, and it's almost unbelievable. But yeah, on, on the was, back of a, an interesting evening, it was in, great, but it, it, it was a sort of it was a period when, you know, politicians were what they appeared to be, you know? So Thatcher was, you know, heartless and cruel, and it was very clear that she was heartless and cruel, yes. you know? And it was just sort of a succession of people who were, it was before, you know, Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair kind of said, maybe we can play dress up and pretend to be really nice and, and actually disguise ourselves and, and sort of whip the populace into a sort of state of confusion, you know, so that nothing is as it seems to be. And of course, when, when um, Tony Blair showed up, I think we were all, you know, Noel Gallagher included, like, hooray, we've won. He's the good guy. Finally, we got the good guy. And it was sort of, it's, well, it's very clear now that, that he was not no, a good but, but guy. We, and, but with all those election nights, and obviously you might not have voted, but if you had voted, those election nights, you woke, you just had that, this is going to be the one, the Neil yeah. Kinnick period, and it was like, no. Yeah. The next period, I remember we went to a, a party, I think it was like 92, and it was like, this is it, this is going to be the part, and it was like immediately, it was like, Oh no! This is a, this is the worst election of all time. You know, John yeah, Major's a, back. Well, there's one thing when the bastards get in, and there's another thing when the good guys get in and they turn out to be just as bad as the bastards. And you're like, <laughs> oh, who am I? You know, I'd always been Cole Not Dole and Arthur Scargill and just sort of full on working class. You know, let's let's eat the rich. You know, that was the thing and. It was very, very disappointing when it took 
the Labour Party becoming the Conservative Party in order for them to get into, into power. And, and I was very, very touched by Jeremy Corbyn, really. You know, I really, I really seemed like it wasn't just his bicycle and his jam. You know, I'd been watching that guy and watching that type of person caring so deeply, that Islington sort of um, energy, really, you know, where people really were trying to do good and... I mean, and just watching him being sacrificed, really, and, and sold down. They were probably the most anti-fascist politician that's ever lived, being sort of painted into a kind of fascist corner where he was being accused of all sorts of, you know, all, all sorts of stuff that I really don't believe he was, you know? He was a, such, a, such a, a caring guy who cared so deeply. You can't fake that kind of vitriol and that kind of passion. And it ignited in much the same way that Crass did. It ignited the hearts of so many people who really believed that a better world was possible and, and, and recognised in the same way that they did Morrissey, even though he didn't turn out so, <laughs> so well, you know, yes. in, in many respects. But I met Morrissey, actually, in L.A. with Tav. Tav was a good friend of mine. He's managing Alt-J and Wolf Alice now and... Um, self-esteem and you know uh, uh, so what period did you meet dear old Morrissey it must have been was when it? I first in early 2000 he was living in LA I was with Ash and we were in the Viper room I think or one of these one of these clubs you know I had yeah. a deal I had a deal with Geffen Records at this point you know and I was sort of uh, still not in still not a major label guy but funding my elemental thing which was then with Derek at One Little Indian um, right. with major label money which was what a lot of those guys you know Mute and Creation and Rough Trade and lots of the people were taking the three songs they recorded with whoever it was the Boo Radleys or whatever and taking it over to the States and playing it to David Massey at Epic or playing it to we had a lawyer and, and that was part of the deal at One Little Indian I went to One Little Indian because I'd known Derek since the Flux of Pink Indians days and he'd stayed at my mum's house and I used to <laughs> stay at their house quite a lot in Forest Hill. Yes. So I always had the sense that Derek was a still an anarcho-punk really, but you know, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was sort of, uh, oh, he's not. I mean, he's still a lovely guy, you know, and I, I have to say he was... Um, you know, he, he took a punt on my label. He bought my label from Bill Gilliam and, and gave me sort of 50% of the shares in it. And he'd done that with quite a few people. But right. That meant that suddenly I was on a plane sort of um, going to New York and LA a lot and um, signing bands and hanging out in Interscope with Snoop Dogg and you know, all sorts of... Did you ever... Okay, of, I, so, so I was going to say, did you meet Jimmy Iovine? Did I meet Jimmy Iovine? I didn't, but I was spending a lot of time with a a Anna Statman and I went to, what's his name, another very, very big A&R guy at Interscope called Tom Wally. Right. I went to his summer, summer house and hung out with him a lot. But Anna Statman was my, was my contact at Interscope because she'd signed Rocket and Jehu and Helmet and Cop Shoot Cop and... Um, uh, maybe even Jim Thurwell and Fetus. I can't remember if she signed them, but she My was God. a, she was, I think she played, she played bass in the, in the gun club. 
Oh my so she, God. she had a, she had a great pedigree, you know, everyone loved Anna Statman and, but really my people were the Geffen people. And, yeah. um, and that was, I remember going and having meetings with, um, God, I just forget some of their names now, which is unforgivable with a, um, I remember the head of Geffen saying to me, um, when Nick Evans came into Geffen Records, we didn't need to use electricity for a month. So I was sort of getting into this whole kind of bullshit right. thing, you know, which, and, and of course, my, my, my ego was, you know, I think so many people in the music business are just so desperate to be liked, you know, and I was so, so keen to be recognized, really. And I remember Josh Deutsch at Elektra Records, who'd signed a bunch of kind of third eye blind or one of these bands, you know, post grungy kind of yes. bands, say, saying it's, it's Captain, it's Captain Personality or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I hadn't sort of really understood that, you know, part of being a decent human being was listening to other people. <laughs> that was, I, I still, you know, I'm still very excited to talk to you about all of it. And it's hard for me to, I sort of revert to type, really. I become a Welsh gobshite. From, uh... <laughs> so just, just before we go back a bit, just your Morrissey, because obviously oh, yeah, I, I yeah. have an interesting relationship with Morrissey, but I've never met him, but, you know, somebody who meant so much and then this, you know, in weird change and this kind of some of the things he said that that are like yeah, you know, weird that, change. It's really it's kind of it's awful. I, I, I'm I'm because you know like like in David Bowie you know it was like just wow that was lucky and you know he just sort of seems to get better and better so that's almost a bit boring. Whereas Morrissey was like wow to wow you know going from yeah. the 80s those interviews where he's just like so articulate and I met lots of or interviewed lots of people from Manchester who knew him before he was in the Smiths and they go yeah he was just doesn't care and then this kind of some of these ideas and thoughts and you know yes so I so was, I think maybe you know he was what I remember you know like I say I sort of felt for Michael Stipe and REM more than I did for Morrissey but when the Smiths clicked for me they really clicked and I totally, I went back to Hand in Glove and This Charming Man and, you know, the earlier stuff because the Queen is dead and, and then Meet His Murder, which was obviously interesting because we were all, you know, fiercely vegetarian, yes. vegan. Um, and then Strange Ways. And those records did really, really affect me um, because I was listening to Stone Roses and to The Mondays and to some of that stuff because we were so close to Manchester but it, it did I did I did get the tail end of the Smiths and I did see the gladioli and I did see the hair and I did see some of the interviews on snub tv and the tube and yes I did feel a sense of kinship and I loved how sensitive he was I loved the fact he said you know I'm asexual because we were all sort of so disturbed really by <laughs> the, the sort of tidal wave of sexuality and, and who are we and for someone to say I'm a vegetarian and I'm not gay but I'm not straight because I just but then listening to these songs where he was clearly trying to tell everyone something yes um, because they were so romantic and sentimental and and sensitive and it, it ignited an aspect of my personality which for all of us I think the the macho side of things for men. Well, it was, was kind it... of tricky because at that point, you know, we had the Duran Duran, Wham, 
yeah you know who who looked yeah anyway and then spandau bally and then you had this kind yeah. of whole trevor horn production sound yeah and this kind which of like, is very dark and you felt like you should be going to those fancy clubs in london and being on the Ooh, no. and, and enjoying the face magazine and yeah. hanging out with you know you think geez I'm, I'm such a failure i'm not even close to that no that's right <laughs> you i know, know. does make you feel really small you know but, it's like but morrissey morrissey was a kind of um shelter or a refuge for people that did feel um sensitive and confused and it sort of made it okay to be a sensitive man and i will be grateful for that because you know whatever happened to him since then and I think by the time Bengali's in platforms and suede head was happening and I think that maybe there was love between Johnny and Morrissey or Johnny and Stephen Um, and it was maybe it was unrequited and who knows you know it's just sort of speculation but when you're not allowed to say I am who I am then, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's Nicky Crane, who was on the front cover of the second uh, Oi album, Strength Through Oi. And then he sort of, it was a picture of him with a shaved head and these tattoos and big sort of 18-hole Dr. Martins kicking kicking the camera, you know, and Gary Bushell writing the sleeve notes. And, you know, 20 years later, we discovered he was a, a closet homosexual too frightened to say right. what his um his sexual identity was and maybe there was some of that going on with Morrissey I don't know so what um, was it so when you met him what was what was the kind of he didn't talk to me he was talking to Ash and Tab but I was stood on the, oh, on right. the and that <laughs> happened a lot I went to Noel Gallagher's house once and you know I had, I had sort of 10 minutes in Noel's company I remember hanging out with Tom York in Tel Aviv or in Caesarea um, because me and Lawrence went over there because Clinic was supporting Radiohead and hung out for 15 minutes with Tom York. So there's a lot of that. Right, and, on the um, edge. Yeah, on the sort of the edges and and sort of getting to, to know people very, very slightly. Um, so did you manage to, because obviously Rough Trade sort of almost takes down the entire record world. That's right. It? I was around when all that was going on. So yeah. how did you, I mean, and how did I was, you navigate... RT- RTM, Rough Trade became RTM. It was, you know, around the time that there was Red Rhino and all of the, all of the, those, the cartel. Um, you know, I started off with my label going through RTM, which had just shifted from being Rough Trade into this new company. And then there was Rough Trade Publishing, Kathy Gibson, and there was, um, uh, there was, um, of course, the shops. Yes. Uh, the rough trade shops and Nigel and Sean and Pete and Jude and all the people at the shops in Labrick Grove and uh, that we knew well. Um, so rough trade as an identity was still there and the culture uh, still existed uh, as this kind of marketing. RTM was rough trade marketing. So Elemental um, went through rough trade marketing. So I knew a lot of the people, Bill Gilliam, who was my alternative tentacles partner slash boss, um, was running the catalogue, which was an early uh, Rough Trade magazine. Yes, that, I've got mine was... with John Peel, the one with John Peel on the cover. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was made in the in my office. Right. Rich, Richard Boone made that. He used to be the Buzzcocks manager, stroke the record label. Yeah. Um, so I worked with Richard Boone uh, for quite a few years, or for, for, for at least a year in... in uh, Finsbury Park in in our offices before we shifted over to um, One Little Indian, 
Um, so, so what's just what's your timeline then with with Elemental? So, when's well, the when, when do you sort of start this label? I started it um, at the very sort of late nineties. I had um, Crane Bivouac who signed to to Geffen Record. Crane, who I'm still close to. Um, Roy and Stephen Malley. Stephen Malley is an absolutely astonishing um, guitarist now. And for, for sort of, um, I'm sorry, I left the timeline again. I'm a lot more <laughs> interested in the people than I am the dates. But, yes. um, but Stephen Malley released a record as the Horse Loom and continues to record as the Unit Ammer. And um, Roy is in a band who made a demo. So Crane were really sort of, they were Fugazi's favorite British band and toured with Fugazi a lot. And um, they were sort of, they used Rickenbackers. They were sort of something in between kind of Pear Ubu, um, the Long Riders, Fugazi um, and the Jam. You know, they were an amazing, and Huskadoo, I suppose. So they bridged a lot of things. And then Bivouac were a kind of Buffalo Tom, Huskadoo kind of, um, but also with a heavy dose of the Melvins. And then I put out Animals That Swim. Oh, had a yes. lot of A lot of singles of the week in the NME. And I got to know all the NME people partially through them. So how um, did you just go, Max, slightly, you know, we, we as the as the decade, the 90s appeared. And we were 90, all... I think the Animals That Swim album was 94. Because just before or around that time, there was all those, the Brit pop shine compilations were coming out left, right and centre. Then Creation Records managed to sort of go yeah. from being quite very indie to the My Bloody, I mean, this is a bit simplistic, to My Bloody Valentine, Sugar, great move. Yeah, they and were then, good, yeah. And um, Bob Maud. But then yeah. they hit, you know, with Oasis. So they managed to, you know, navigate that period so well. So, so how did you sort of... You know, because often trying to keep on the zeitgeist is very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, Most it people stressful. in one period, you know, just have no idea the next, you know, in five yeah. years. You know, a lot of the people in the 60s disappeared in the 70s and people in the 70s yeah. just don't get the 80s, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, so, I can, I'll tell you if I'd like to, I'd like to stop me if I'm butting into. No, much, no, that's fine. I don't, I don't mean to be uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, shut, shut you down at all. No, that's because, good. But, uh, but what, what, what I wanted to say is, you know, when I was, when I was really little, my mother taught me, took me off to learn transcendental meditation. Right. Um, I must have been about eight or nine. And there was a picture of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and also a picture of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And I got given my Sanskrit syllable and I started repeating. I gave them my pocket money. And I remember seeing John Lennon and George Harrison in the photograph and, uh, and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere special now. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is important. And then maybe, you know, 10 years later, I was at Grassroots Community Centre watching Discharge, supported by supported by Insanity Squad, who I think went on to become no choice. And and it was the most ferocious thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know, and I was like, I couldn't be anywhere else on planet Earth right now. This is where life is. This is where God is. This is where this is where. This is the most spiritual place on the planet right now. Yes. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, but it felt like it. I saw Crass at the Trinity, uh, not the Trinity, where was it? It was some very violent gig in Bristol. But everybody got the shit kicked out of them. And I just remember thinking, you know, nothing else in the world exists apart from Crass now. <laughs> and I had those moments 
you know, they, I was always looking for that. And it's, right. and I still am, you know, when I discovered Ashtanga yoga, all these, the sort of after my cancer, which I was going to touch on after I was diagnosed with cancer and I had all this chemotherapy. Um, and it was a case of it. I remember seeing that, that advert for the Bisto kids. Yes. And it was a cartoon and the Bisto kids were, were sort of out playing and, and mum's gravy came wafting to the playground and the Bisto kids followed the gravy. They do, yes. I, I never stopped following the gravy. Right. I know, I'm still following the gravy. Don't and the them. weird thing about the gravy is sometimes it's music, but sometimes it's not. Yes. You know, it changes shape and it dances and it's it's wherever the wherever the bisto is, you know, and and I had that. I remember seeing Nirvana and kind of going, Bisto. <laughs> and I remember, you know, going to dance to Orteca or you know, whatever it was. Bisto, you know, popping a pill, being, I remember seeing Alabama 3 and thinking Bisto, and unfortunately it wasn't Alabama 3, it was Moby, <laughs> you know, who had a similar idea, which was this yes. sort of re repurposing old Robert Blues. Johnson records and yes. uh, country music and, uh, and filtering it through 808s and 303s. And I remember seeing Rocket from the Crypt and, and thinking this is James Brown, The Clash and Elvis, um, and the Descendants and the MC5 all rolled into one. This is everything I missed, you know, and and the same with Drive Like Jehu, you know, with just this sort of huge churning kraut rock. It was, it was trance music, you know, but made by four San Diego guys with guitars, you know, and I was just completely tripping on Drive Like Jehu, because, yes. which, had, which had come from Slint, really you know we were all fell in love with slint and and bastro and bitch magnet and that era of post-sonic youth kind of um poster children um all these bands that were kind of one part sonic youth two parts um bullet la volta one it was just these incredible kind of gatherings of energy really you know and of course now that's what i do i'm i'm interested and involved in energy and energy like why do some people become savants or you know why was sid barrett why is sid barrett remembered sort of 50 60 years later as a as a sort of genius or bowie for that matter you yes. know and 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 i don't so know did, so did you lane not yeah so he he did an amazing song called the poacher but yeah, he's a genius, did, genius. He's, he's stunning but did you ever get into things like organ energy did, did that sort I, of i mean i were in the midst of all this very frightening experience and diagnosis where i had a, a ewing's peanut sarcoma which is a soft tissue tumor and i've been sort of hammering it with the best of them around the water rats and you know trying to hang out with Alan McGee or whatever it was, you know, at the time. And, <laughs> um, and I, and that sort of sensitive Nick was the sacrificial lamb really to keep on riding that zeitgeist and keep, keep, um, keep uh, current and keep sort of um, motivated. And the pressure was very intense then because I had this deal with Geffen. It was a, 
uh, five album deal. It was called a first option deal. So I had to be feeding Geffen and getting on the plane and going to the marketing meetings. And at this point I was wearing Duffer and St. George and trying to be cool. Um, And actually feeling as though I'd abandoned a very, very sort of creative aspect of myself, which as, as I've told you, you know, I was in bands, I was a guitar player, I was a songwriter, and all of that had been the guitar was in the attic. I was sort of just busy trying to keep up with the NME and um, <clears throat> Ted Kessler and, uh, and Mark Bowen at Creation and uh, Lawrence who, who had Domino at this point. And, um, <clears throat> and, a bit confused about who I, my identity musically and but very, still very, very, very passionate and very motivated. Still the Bisto guy yes. looking for the, where, where, where the magic was, you know, really. Um, and of course, all of us who saw, uh, by the time I saw or saw Oasis, they were all play, already playing big places, but it was clear whatever you thought about the music and, you know, they were the underclass. I always, always appreciated working class musicians. Yeah. Um, and whenever there was a working class musician in a position of power, I, I was with them. You know, I, I'm really into working class people being powerful. Of course, I knew about orgone energy because of Hawkwind and orgone accumulator <laughs> and, and all that. But, but really, um, when the cancer started, I, I'd signed a band who were friends of uh, the Alabama Three called Low Finger, who used to be Rub Ultra, um, who were on, not food, on Hut Records, you know, right. another sort of fake indie that was doing the rounds, who had the Smashing Pumpkins and a few good bands. And um, Dave Boyd, I think he was running that, pretending to be an indie guy. Um, but um, Low Finger had some... I thought that they were really, really great, you know, and and again, they were a mixture of rock and roll and dance music and I used to hang out with them a lot. And um, one of the guys in Lowfinger uh, had a good friend who was a Reiki master, uh, a woman called Alison who lived in Brixton. And when I sort of showed up, I told Lowfinger, look, it's going to be difficult for me to A&R the record and do the meetings with Geffen and blah, 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 because I'm, I start chemotherapy next week and they told me that, you know, they think they can save my life. And right. so then so what so going back slightly, what happens with your health? You know, what what's the moment that you think something's not right? I, and- I had a big lump here and I'd had a lump in my chest and uh, I got that checked out and they said, oh, it's an inflamed ziphoid. I was doing too much. I didn't have any sort of real sort of have friends at that point, really. It was all kind of, um, how can I put it? It was all, you know, who, who, like friendship had become currency. Right. So I was sort of, you know, the relationship I was in, there was sort of professional element to that. And um, my friendships, there was a professional element to all the friendships too. And they were lovely people and I'm not uh, saying anything untoward but everybody was in that position because the stakes were high at that point yes nobody was a a dnv f- fan anymore you know, everybody <laughs> was who's the next oasis is it campag Velocet or terrace you know and uh, <laughs> it was just a nightmare really because people were trying to to force 
artists that weren't really ready to be something that they weren't. You yes, know? And it was, men's it was, hair was never going to make it. Yeah, all of that. And it was difficult because I think to some extent, everybody knew that they were, they were doing something that, that didn't have the depth of integrity that we all aspired to. And it was painful for our spirits because a lot of us had gotten into music and politics, some of us, because we cared so deeply because we were affected so deeply and by, and if a double-decker bus crashes into both of us to die by your side, the prever, the pleasure, the privilege is mine, you know, because yes. we wanted that depth of feeling in our music, you know, whether it was, how does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead? We could feel how much they cared. It was real, you can't fake that. It's impossible. Yes. Nobody's ever done it and got away with it. Never. Nobody. Yes. So Nobody that, that, that stood the test of time. You know, you can't be a faker and touch somebody's heart deeply. And even Oasis had that, you know, they, they shake along with me. You know, we were, we were, we believed them. Yes. Um, and so I suppose you know, when the doctor said to me, well, that one was an inflamed xiphoid, but this one is a, a very rare kind of cancer that spreads very quickly into the lungs and the bones. And suddenly I was in, I was in the Royal Marsden Hospital. Um, you know, some people came to visit, some people didn't, because of course I was their fear. Everybody was afraid of that. Nobody wanted to hang out with the, the, the cancer ridden loser. No. Um, and I had a very, very strong, apart from, you know, the guys from Animals That Swim, Paul Spragan, who was my lawyer, who's now Adele's lawyer and still keeps in touch and gives me a call every, even though I'm long forgotten. Some but of this, these guys, but, this, but this is around the same time that uh, Lauren, um, Lance Armstrong has also been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, that's a good, yeah. I, of the I, brain and the lung. So he, I didn't know him. That was sort of, sort of later. He was, I, I, he, I know. I mean, I wasn't really into cycling then, but I've sort of read and listened to various interviews with him. And, uh, Lance Armstrong, I'm thinking that you're talking about the singer from... Um, the guy who was on Allied Records, who was Sean's friend, but you're talking about the cyclist. The cyclist. He? Yeah, that was, okay, he, yeah. he was only about 23 and suddenly realised he had testicular he cancer. He was before me, actually. And it was, yeah, it was around, it was kind of the, the mid-90s and then suddenly coughed up blood and then had sort of, you know, brain cancer, the whole lot. Yeah, and it was like, yeah. you, you're not going to survive. But he recovered, didn't he? Completely recovered. It was like yeah, one of those yeah. complete freaks. So, so we I'm thought... Thinking of, I'm thinking of Lance Hain. He's another one who died of cancer, and he was a, the sort of linchpin of the US anarcho-punk movement and sang for, who did Lance Haynes sing for? We have to, I can, because I'll, some people will never forgive me if I don't. Lance uh, Haynes. Yeah, come on. It's, it's uh, if I don't remember this. <laughs> uh, what God, was I, I have to, I'm sorry. Yes, Lance, I Since I remembered his surname. I know. Lance Haynes. Let's see if it's Hans, Lance, Lance Hain. I don't know <laughs> if I've spelt it right. This is probably not great for your uh, no, no, for I your mean, podcast. It, it, it keep, it keep Lance Hain of J Church. Remember Jane J Church? Jane he passed Church. away. He passed away. Um, yeah, he passed away. I think Friday, October the twelfth. Punk News, two thousand and seven. But right. J Church. 
he was writing a book about anarcho-punk that uh, called Let the Tribe Increase, which was um, focused quite heavily on the mob and that part of it all. Yeah. So when, once you said Lance, I immediately jumped to Lance. Yes, name, no, but, uh, dear old Lance Armstrong. Which was, anyway, um, I'm back. I'm back. With so Lance yeah. Armstrong. So so what was your treatment? Did you just have to have chemo? Did you have an operation? I, I had a lot of chemo very strong chemo, sort of 18 hours of chemo overnight, four hours off, 18 hours of chemo, four hours off, 18 hours of chemo, four hours off, 18 hours of chemo, go home, um, 10 days, all the hair falls out, everything starts hurting. Um, I mean, I won't go into detail, but I really, that's when I became sort of, I won't say religious, but um, you know, just praying, really, please help, 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 please. This is so terrible. Yeah. And I, I had about six sessions of chemo and then a lot of surgery and reconstruction. Um, really brutal. Wow. Um, that was, that was, in, that was... And then another six sessions of chemo, I think, or was it another four sessions of chemo and then radiotherapy. So it was just relentless. And when I got out, you know, I sort of managed to kind of, wriggle out of the Geffen deal and to talk to Derek, who luckily was a, he'd come to visit me and he paid for my treatment to be private. And there was another guy called Dave from Fat Cat Records and they had the early Cigarettes records and right. mum and all those people. And he was down the corridor and I was friendly with him and Alex and Dave had a non-specific Hodgkinson's and the one little Indian building was in Brian Bonner's making records which I heard Colin Jerwood discuss. So they were manufacturing CDs and vinyl and DVDs and maybe some of the chemicals. And nobody, nobody ever knows really, but, but you know, in my heart of hearts, in the midst of all this kind of bald chemo, um, where I was disappearing off for Reiki once a week with this woman, Alison, who was friends with Lowfinger and the Alabama Three, uh, I really did get a taste of You know, I'm I'm loath to say God because, of course, if you say God, you're mental. Um, <laughs> but um, I saw a great big sort of sun in my own in my own inner world, and I sort of to cut a very long story short because I've told this story before, but um, I started crying a lot for weeks, weeping, sobbing and saying, it's okay. You know, I, I was living in Chiswick in, in a flat. And I remember saying, you know, how many Nicks must there be on this street? There must be at least another four or five Nicks. And I bet, you know, we can do without one of them. Maybe it's okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not beating my heart. I didn't design hands and, apples and pears and I'm not sure there's any scientist that did either you know how did how did how did eyes learn how to see and ears learn how to hear mm. and how do how does every foot know how to have five toes on the end of it how where's this architecture coming from how come apples don't get confused and decide to taste like bananas how does this work 
And I saw light. And it's it's weird because everyone talks about all the people who've had near-death experiences. They talk about the tunnel mm. and the light. And I saw all that. And I was like, Jesus Christ, you know. And I had no <laughs> spiritual tendencies or religious tendencies other than this early thing with my mum, who was a very devoted meditator and Buddhist and all this stuff. And so... I sort of cried and I, I cried and I cried and I cried and 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 I sort of said I, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Whoever's beating my heart, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are, but I'm not doing it. I'm not digesting my food. I'm not deciding that I like murmur more than reckoning. Mm. Or, you know, Christ the album less than Stations of the Crass. <laughs> I don't know what makes me dance when the B-52s come on. I don't know. I'm not fucking doing it. I never studied this at university. I got no idea. But it's not me. I, it's no, I got no idea. I didn't pl plan this monologue. It's just going blah, blah, blah. It's coming out, you know. So something is intelligent. And I don't care what you call it. You know, I think I think you'd be a fool to call it God, but it's the same energy that made discharge so fucking incredible in grassroots. And it's the same energy that made the mob sing. I wish I could love. It must be fun to love because not so many people do it, you know, or Mark Astronaut say. All the amazing things that he said, you know. Mm. Um, rest his soul, you know, and it's the same thing that made me feel really moved when I heard Marcus Garvey by Burning Spear, you know, do you remember the days of slavery? Do you? Because mm. they're still here, you know, and if people stop caring, you know, Boris Johnson and all those fucking hideous pigs are going to eat us all, you know, and it still matters. And if you have a soul, this stuff will still touch you, you know, in a way that, God bless Billie Eilish, but I don't know, you know, I don't know if these kids are being touched in the way that we were touched, you know? And I suppose that the moment I said, well, it doesn't matter if Nick Evans lives or dies really in the grand scheme of things, because I'm not anything to write home about, and elementals, not really anything to write home about. And the only thing that matters to me is that I finally get around to making my own music, which I've been threatening to do since I was 11. You know, that's all that matters because everything else is gravy, really. Um, and I felt a weight lift and I felt myself kind of forgiven or I forgave myself, or however you want to put it, that, you know, the Christian people say born again, you know, the yoga people, they've all got their language too, which is another huge Ashtanga subculture I've been involved with, along with Mike from the Beastie Boys, and who, who I spent quite a lot of time with in India, studying Ashtanga yoga with the guru there, and um, a lot of these old music people found yeah. Ashtanga yoga, you know, Chris Martin, and, and there was, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Madonna and Willem Dafoe all practicing with Eddie Stern in New York in the early 2000s. And um, a lot of people I know found that discharge feeling, which is also, 
you know, the, the, the feeling that you had with Bowie or Morrissey or, you know, all yes. those things, that special feeling that we're all interested in. Um, I found it in the Ashtanga. I found it in the organ or the, you know, the prana. It's, it's the life force. It's the thing that leaves the body at the moment of death, which apparently weighs 2.3 grams or something. I forget the, uh, but there, there's that film, you know, yes. 2.3 grams all about what happens between a living body that's not dead yet. And then it dies and the weight changes. So something leaves and, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a scientist who would convince us both that uh, that's got nothing to do with the soul. But when I hear, you know, Dr. Ali Mantado or Muta Baruka or, or, or Ray Davis or Bowie when he wasn't wearing someone else's head, you know, when people really are singing from the heart, when Joni Mitchell singing blue or, mm -hmm. or, or Steve Ignorant or, you know, Eve Libertine, when people just have the courage to be who they really are. And, and, and that spirit speaks through them. Why, 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 but why? You can feel it, you know, you can feel. Discharge, I don't know why I keep coming back to discharge, but because I suppose, you know, it's funny because they were so pure and their anger was so deep and pure, you know, and where even Crass had layers of kind of um, culturalized voices before, you know, you had to dig a little deeper for their yes. purity, but, but there was something so, so honest. They, I got very tired of music when it became knowing, you know, and for me, lots of my old punk friends, when, when they heard my record, you know, they were like, you know, mate, what's this? What are you doing? You know, and, and I said, it's the only punk thing. I can still friends with Sned, who, um, you know, was the drummer in generic for many, many years, along with a lot of other really great hardcore bands. One of the first sort of really, really fast drummers that I ever met. And he ran Flat Earth Records in the 80s. And he was a real, and still is a real, a narco hardcore linchpin. Um, a bit like Sean Forbes there in London. Um, but, it, you know, if you know, you know. Sned and Sean, there are people who, who kept the fire burning. Yes. And... Uh, you know, and, and were there through all of Chumba's incarnations. And they never, they never swayed. They were never dragged along with anything because they were so clear about who they were and what they felt, you know. And, and I think that, you know, in some respects, the only thing I could think to do that was punk, as punk as Discharge, was to say, look how gentle and vulnerable and sensitive I am. You know, because that's where punk come from. The first record I ever bought was, the first record I ever bought with my own money was ever falling in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with from Woolies on Panath High Street, before right. Shaved Women, before The Day the World Turned Day Glow, before In a Rut, before all the other stuff. It cost me 39p and you spurn my natural emotions. You make me feel I'm dirt and I'm hurt. And I was on a plane with the Buzzcocks going to New York once and they were all ripped to the tits on fuck knows what. <laughs> they weren't, 
those sensitive young men anymore, but Pete Shelley was one of the most sensitive songwriters, so gentle, so kind, so open, so willing to discuss things that very, very few songwriters have been brave enough to discuss since. You know, orgasm addict, I mean, promises. It was relentless <laughs> how, how, how brave that man was willing to be, you know, in the early part of the Buzzcocks. And so for me, the thing that really affected me about punk more than any other musical style really was that there were people who were willing to show how vulnerable and sensitive they were. And that for me made it authentic. And all I was really ever interested in was authenticity. And that's what I tried to do finally with my Dawn Song record, which was to gather all of the strands at the age of 49 or 50, living in the Netherlands, teaching yoga, running a, a yoga shala. I was, I was sort of thinking, how can I make a record that can honor each different sort of Wurzel gummage head I, I put on throughout all this journey, you know, and didn't betray any of these nicks. Right. Oh. That sort of, um, and that's why I wanted to leave a record. When my dad died, he published a book of poetry. And when his died, he published a book called um, The Abba Valley, which was all about the different surnames in the Abba Valley, the history of the, uh, the men in the Abba Valley and, and where all these names came from. And then my dad published a book of poetry called Births, Marriages and Deaths. So there was a sort of family Evans tradition that everybody had to leave their son something. So I made that record, it's called For Morgan, and it's supposed to be a sort of time capsule so that when I'm dead, he can still hear me sing to him because I've been singing to him. I, I still play a lot and yes. um, I'm still a, a very, I wouldn't say very, but I'm still a musical person. I don't know how, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to sing, but, it, but it, it's very important to, to, to my sort of mental, spiritual, emotional, physical health to be, to never put the guitar back up in the, in the attic and never become, you know, an auxiliary figure in my relation to music. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, because I couldn't survive that a second time. I survived it once, but I could, it would be a, a great deceit, you know, um, a great betrayal of my artistic nature, you know, which is, which is, as I told you earlier on, you know, was there from a very, very young age and, and has been, it's very scary to bear yourself in that way and to, to sort of, so I sent this Dawn Song record, which took three years to make and a lot of money and a lot of time and to find the right people. I found a few people who really believed in me and the songs and uh, very technically quite gifted musicians who were willing to, to sort of not see me as a yoga teacher. Yes. Um, I've been in a lot of yoga books and yoga films and, and that's a other, another whole sort of subculture that um, I, I got a certain level of visibility in and these were people who were like no we think you're a songwriter and we, your songs are good and one of them was a classic English horn player and an oboist who spent her sort of um, you know 
her adult life in various orchestras and things. And I'd, I'd done demos with um, uh, Ewan Morgan, who'd worked with um, Griff Reese and Kate LeBorn. And, and I made some demos with him that didn't turn out so well. And I made uh, some recordings in India with the Juan McLean, who, um, who's on DFA and used to be in a band on Sub Pop. And he was a very nice guy whose game was into the Ashtanga. And uh, I knew his manager very well, who manages um, Bedouin and um, Jose Gonzalez and some of these people. And he connected us and I did some recording with him. Uh, and I recorded at David Tibet's house from Current 93. His then wife and David Tibet came up with the name. He said, you are the Dawn song, Nick. <laughs> you know, and he, he knew I was his yoga teacher for a long time, David Tibet. So, well, well not a long time, on and off, you know. Yes. And uh, I've always really loved and respected David and his, and his ex-wife, Andrea. So I recorded some first demos there. And of course, at this point, I was 40, God knows what. And it was so ridiculous. Uh, and if I did mention it to anyone, they go, oh, no, you know, <laughs> shut up, mate, you know. Um, <clears throat> so for me, that was sort of really coming full circle and doing what needed to be done. Um, and Morgan really, really loved it. And my old friend Matthew from Tangle Parrot in Swansea had it started a record label and he put a single out by Dat Bluggy, who's, a, who's, Bluggy. A, yeah, who's a great, uh, who's a great Welsh yes. kind of um, post punk electronic uh, guy died recently but Matthew had put a seven inch out by him and Matthew was sort of friends with the the kind of um West Wales Tathia you know the, the uh, Hugh Stevens and you know some of these people that um I think Griff Reese would go into his shop and so Matthew was like well I you know he'd been listening to my music and he said you know I'll do it if no one else wants to do it if, you know but I sent it to Lawrence, I sent it to um, Mark Cates from Geffen, I sent it to Penny. Penny was listening to it for two years. <laughs> every single demo, every detail, and writing long. Ta Tav, who was then one of the world's biggest, most successful managers, writing back. Yes, Nick. Lawrence, who else? All of them. None of them blanked me. Every single one who by rights should have said, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> go and teach some yoga. Every single one of them said, no, we remember how, how much you love music and how great your label was, some of them. And the guys from Crane, the guy from Bivouac, Paul Yeadon, he mastered it free of charge out of the love of his heart. He's a mastering engineer now. He's done some good records. So all these people, Aldous Harding, who's my favourite new, new artist from the last... 10 years really, she wrote to me and said, oh, your song's really great. All these people were writing back and saying, it's beautiful, well done, it's wonderful. Tab writing back and saying, well, the good news is the songs are great. The bad news is the production's terrible. You know, so there were just all these people. Um, and Fish from Icons of Filth, who, who also recorded a demo with me, writing back and saying, oh, I love it, Nick, it's amazing. I felt this huge sense of completion and, and sort of um, like I could finally exhale. Yes. I made is... my record. I made my record and it wasn't a generic seven inch. It wasn't a slaughter tradition tape. It wasn't singing songs on a Chumbawamba side project. It wasn't touring with the sperm birds and generic uh, <laughs> squats in, 
in, you know, it was me and my, my sort of heart ripped open singing love songs to my son um, who taught me the meaning of, um, of love really, you know, I mean, not that my wife didn't play a big part in that, but you know, when you have a kid, it's, it's another kind of love. Yes. Filial love or agape or one of these other, what that, you know, I was very familiar with Eros, but um, you know, the, that filial love and agape, you know, it took that child to teach me to love someone else more than I loved myself or crass. (laughs) (laughs) Or conflict. But so, so not not conflict. (laughs) Sorry, Colin. (laughs) Colin, Um, conflict. But But, flux, uh, yes. And uh, the mob, yes. And poison girls, yes. Rudimentary people, yes. It was discharge. Sorry, I'm getting discharge. Discharge also, you know. Yeah. But look, so how long did it take to recover from all that treatment? Was it a year or two? No, I was having five years of checkups before I was in remission. And that was when I made some money because I I got out of the um, the Geffen deal and I explained to Derek, I can't, I can't. That guy isn't there anymore. Um, And I can't go back to it. And so I managed to to get out of that deal. Yes. With with Derek's blessings and a lot of tears. Um, And I shut down Elemental Records. Um, did you can you can you remember the sort of the day when it was kind of all over yeah I remember crying and Derek saying oh for fuck's sake Nick don't cry and I I remember thinking but I can I can you know and that's the best thing about me it's the only thing about me that I really respect you know and it's the only thing about me that gave me the right to run Elemental Records in the first place yes Um, and Derek sort of you know, wished me well. And uh, I took the money and I sort of um, edged my way out of my relationship, um, you know, not very nicely. Um, and um, I went to India because I'd, I'd done some Ashtanga and the Ashtanga had the discharge thing. It was there, you know, it was very, very strong, yes. very powerful, very meaningful. And it connected me back to the creative subcurrent or the orgone, as you called it, or the prana, which is where creativity comes from. So ultimately, you know, we can tell the difference between Morrissey in the Smiths and Morrissey not in the Smiths. Yeah. I mean, it's so patently fucking obvious, you know, it doesn't take <laughs> a, a, you know, an enemy writer to figure that out. We all figured it out. You know, it was just not good enough. And it didn't feel substantial creatively. And so, you know, for me, what I became very interested in is what is it that makes some things magical, beautiful and timeless and other things disposable, forgettable and meaningless? Yes, you know, and actually, that's a really good point because I've wondered that myself so much. You know, what Ace of Spades, Motorhead, amazing. Dancing Queen by ABBA, amazing. Changes by David Bowie, yes. amazing. You know, just like you know, yeah, it's you know, that. I heard it in your voice every it, single <laughs> interview you did. You know, yeah. it's still bursting out of your chest. You it's know, that it's kind just, of what is it that you know, that's something, isn't it? It's God, dude. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not a, 
a Christian, I'm not born again, I'm not a religious person. But when you're in deep yoga, when you're in deep meditation, it's there and it's in your heart. It doesn't live in a church or a temple. It lives in your heart. And when people are deeply connected to their own hearts, they sing because it's the only way you can deal with the pain of the horrors that the nobility and the wealthy and the landed gentry have wrought upon this planet. You know, they have done humanity a, a disservice. You know, they are greedy, they are evil, and they are ruthless, and they are desperate, and they are frightened, and they need to be told. And that's why discharge, that's why Dancing Queen, that's why ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, that's why a hard rain is gonna fall, that's why Babylon must fall. Babylon must fall. You know, it's not optional. And it's only gonna fall when the people connect to their hearts. You know, and, and I know I sound very dramatic and very, but I've, yoga and cancer and crass all, and Neil Young, you know, all, when he sang Helpless, mm. when he sang, look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s, it's because we are suffering, you know, because it's not okay. Boris Johnson's not okay. And it's easier to make a joke about it now or to, you know, have a joke about Alan McGee or, you know, keep it small. But these songs are not small. Creativity isn't small. Our hearts are not small. You know, Morrissey, well, before he was a, a racist pig, and he wasn't a small person. He was a brave man yeah. with a heart of gold. You know, when Joni Mitchell sang Blue, I mean, this was just pure love, you know, and it was dignified when Johnny Rotten, when Joe, Joe, Stummer, Joe, Joe Strummer said it, they meant it, you can't fake it. No matter how many trilby hats you try on, you know, it's got to be real. Yes. So all, all I, I had to do was to at least make a record that was real you know, and, and to sing from my heart and to sing from the deepest love that I knew, which was, I'm gonna to sing to my son and I'm not gonna put any lyrical devices. It's not gonna be knowing, it's not gonna be clever and it's not gonna be arch. And those that know will recognize and those that don't will make a joke about me being a big puff or whatever, just like they did at school, you know the thugs, the thugs always beat up the artists, you know? Yes, this is true. God, my God. So did, I mean, just on that creative process, when you got the album out, did they feel like a release or did you think, God, I've got to do this again. I've got to sing another album to Morgan. No, I'm satisfied with that one. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to do another one, but the songs have to be there and they have to be good enough. I like those songs. I'm proud of those songs and they're real and they serve a purpose and they needed to come out. It's a sort of 
cleansing kind of thing. Um, I don't have to do another one, but I play a lot. I write a lot. I sing a lot. Um, Morgan and Katya still enjoy my music and the oboe player still plays with me and I still play with the guitarist every couple of weeks. And the guy who, who played the bass on the record, um, he's in a Cream covers band with Ginger Baker's son. Right. Um, and the guitarist was in a, a Genesis and Phil Collins. There's a lot of very technically proficient musicians in the Netherlands. Mm. They're very good at copying people. They're some of the best cover bands you'll ever see in the Netherlands, but not that many, maybe apart from Pit Bloom or the X, not that many great Dutch, I'm sure Golden Earring would disagree, but uh, <laughs> not many great Dutch bands, you know, although I, I love De Kift. They're, they were a, a Dutch sort of post-punk band who were really good, but, you know, and, and the drummer was from a death metal band called Luciferian. And like I say, the oboe player was, um, you know, playing in an orchestra, uh, but she loved them. She says, oh, it reminds me of English folk music. It sounds very medieval. Um, and it sounds, uh, and then, like I say, I started getting all this feedback from people whose opinions, you know, Lawrence said he thought it was a, a, a timeless classic, you know, all these amazing things from people. I mean, I, I could send you them. It was quite a shock. And I never told anybody. I never shared any of the quotes or anything. I kept it all private because they were all old friends of mine. This is the first person I'm telling. But by the time I sent one of the little videos to Aldous Harding via my Instagram and she wrote back just saying, it's really good. Your song's really good. And I had a pages and pages of all this Aldous Harding stuff. And I, I worship Aldous Harding, you know, I have all the sort of, you know, as much as I do, Gorky Zygotic Monkey or, you know, some of these, I really like Euros Child. Yes. Um, so I was very touched by him and some of his, let those blue skies. He was another one who's very, or Jonesy from Sigur Ross, or these people are just so sensitive. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I, I feel satisfied and I don't have to, you know, Matthew, manufactured a hundred vinyl and a hundred CDs and we numbered them all. Excellent. And it was, it was enough that Matthew and some of these old friends said, it's beautiful. And it was enough to get that. I, I still don't know. And a few strangers too. Cause you I know? saw, I saw it's been streamed a lot on Spotify, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I paid for some, playlists and things you know I tried to get it out there and right. I talked I talked to Tav a lot um who's who's very successful now he's got Alt-J and Wolf Alice and um you know everything he touches where he used to manage Ash and he did all the all the um all the plugging for Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, and the KLF. He worked at Rough Trade. He's been around a long time. He managed one of my bands, AC Acoustics, who are, who I liked a lot, who I had a little bit of success with yes. early on with Elemental. And he said, well, you know, you're too old, and um, but it's really good. So what you can do um, is you can, there's a way of sort of doing it without losing loads of money, paying publicists and radio pluggers and you can start to and, and and there's been a lot of bands who've been very successful getting their music straight to Spotify and I was like I don't even use Spotify dude you know I'm 
um, what about SoundCloud? He went, shut up, Nick. As, <laughs> as you can see, I'm talk talkative. But, um, you know, he said there's a way of doing it. And part of that was getting playlists and, you know, kind of promoting songs. And right. So I did a little bit of that, which got it out there. Um, but, you know, you don't know who's listening to them. You're not really... But I did a bit of Instagramming and I got a little um, Facebook page, but it was in the middle of all the pandemic. So either I sat on it, tried to put the band together and play some gigs, or I said, well, it's a, it's a gift for my son, uh, honouring my life in music, um, giving myself the feeling at least that I'd been true to myself, you know, and my... My, my, my calling, um, even if nobody gives a crap and lots of people didn't, you know, a few people I sent it to, I sent it to Ted Kessler, who I'd always admired and, and he was like, ah, not kind of, not my kind of music. Um, but it got a few plays on, it got a few plays on BBC Radio Wales folk shows and it got about 15 or 20 glowing reviews from Welsh things you know it's all whales because i released it on this little welsh label um but it's sort of enough but if another one might come along if the songs are good enough if i yes. feel like there's enough music you know and all it takes is a spotify premium account and you can see there's just so much music it's we're drowning in it now really it's quite difficult. what we need now is curators we need curators i know we yeah. we kind of we be sort of the gatekeepers as i used to sometimes talk about but you're yeah. a you're a curator now you do, um, you've done a good job you know it's nice <laughs> i know no i'm not joking it's very nice what you've done it's it's respectful and it's um it's you but it's also them it's like painting a picture I remember saying to Lawrence once you know when I started making these he, he sort of wrote to me and he said oh it sounds like you know Sid Barrett it sounds like um you know a genuinely um eccentric English folk record that will be and I was like, oh Lawrence Lawrence because now of course now he's a he's a big cheese now um and I said to him but don't you ever you know, you were in perfect days back in the day, you know, you, you were at all the early senseless things gigs, you were a, in a band, you're a singer. Don't you ever want to um, make a record to honour that creative part? Because he's another sort of sensitive, kind yes. guy, you know, with, who's not really a, a tough music business mogul. Um, and he said, well, you know, I, I'm painting a picture with Domino. You know, I choose carefully the artists and I paint the picture. You know, I can't put my friend's records out, Nick. Sorry, it would be too, you know, sort of disrespectful for, to the other ones who I haven't. You know, you're a, yes. you're a very dear old friend. So I respected that. I was a little bit uh, little bit sad, you know, because <laughs> Domino turned into such a... It didn't turn... It's always been a great label, actually. But... Um, yes. Um, yeah, so... But, but I thought what he said about... That was something I never quite got to that level with Elemental. You know, I was it was beginning, but the the illness really knocked me onto a different track. You know, anyway, blah blah blah. I'm sure. Yeah, well, I, of me I think. Now. Well, I think it sort of from sort of various stories, but you know, like Alan McGee sort of got that oasis, that seventy, that nineties period, and then you know, eventually the the wheels come off, don't they? Oh, I it mean, really did. But but he put out so many. I mean, bandwagon esque and loveless. And um, the Swerve Driver records, 
Um, never mind the other stuff, but those three, I would say that for me were during my particularly swerve driver, um, who I never thought got their, their full, their just desserts, you know. Um, I loved Swerve Driver. I thought, again, they had a sensitivity and they had what My Bloody Valentine and Teenage Fan Club have, but also with sort of layers of such sort of clever guitar melodies, yeah. saturated, you know, in melody. I was drowning in their melodies. I went to see them in Cardiff about eight years ago or something, and there were about six people there, and I was just like, oh, fuck the music business. Fuck this, you know, Swerve, <laughs> Swerve Driver. I will sing their praises, you know. And um, So it's a cruel business in a way, you know, because I think there are so many unsung genie animals that swim, you know, AC Acoustics, some of the bands on my label, I, I'll never understand really why they never got their... Their moment. But yeah, I get moment, yeah. I remember talking to Joe Boyd about Nick Drake and it was oh, a bit yeah, like yeah. the frustration oh, of I that. I love Nick Drake. Love Nick Drake's kind, the other one. They they kind of like, God, you know, this just isn't I'm sorry, you know, Nick. Right. This isn't gonna quite work. You know, we're not we're not gonna sell more than fifty copies, I'm oh, afraid. Stop it. Don't even say I don't even want to know, you know. But, but it's, it's like, funny then John Martin went on to sort of I don't know. But you know, when you look, but when you listen to Solid Air on a winter's day, that record just gets it's me. Very it's, beautiful, yeah. Oh, yeah. there is some yeah. Danny Thompson's bass. It's that sol it's that kind of like Joni Mitchell. You've got blue in, in the winter, you've got hiss in the summer, lawns in the summer, yeah. <laughs> port and spark kind of springtime, yeah. that That's kind a great of record too. car on the hill, you know, you know, people's parties. It's just like that. The, very very powerful very the deep music is just like you know yeah yeah and and some of those lyrics on blue you know uh today those conversations that she can put into a song which are just like last time i saw richard was just oh like, yeah yeah i could it, drink a case of you oh you know and, and just, still be on my feet yeah yeah it's no it's uh, it's i mean my my father's favorite artist was leonard cohen you know, and so I grew up, there was a lot of Leonard Cohen, and, but I could see my dad, <clears throat> he didn't just like Leonard Cohen. He was devoted to Leonard Cohen. He was in love with Leonard Cohen. He didn't just like George Bressens. He was, he worshipped George Bressens. He didn't just like Tom Paxton. He was completely smitten. So I think falling in love and music have a very, very close. Why it's such a, or it was such a big business, still is in, in some respects, is because yes. it's nothing, nothing. I remember being at Dial House talking to Penny and G and me sort of banging on about my record and Penny indulging me and listening and being willing to engage and very, very, very sweet and very innocent and very kind, Penny. You can be very ruthless and creatively sort of um, tough, um, but he's a Tinkerbell. He has a little Tinkerbell tattooed on his shoulder, actually. He's a real sort of um, light touch and a very, very sort of gentle, creative quality to a certain aspect of his character. And I remember discussing and G kind of going, oh God, music, it's just relentless. Because of course she's a visual artist yes. and, a, and one of the most visual artists, of one of the most, 
talented visual artists of my lifetime um, and finally getting the recognition she deserves in some of the most prestigious museums in Europe. And, but she's, she's still sort of drowning in other people's obsession with music. And, you know, Penny said, well, Nick, I think this is a worthwhile project. You should continue this. But he also said, sometimes I'd send him mixes and stuff. Oh, it's awful, you know, do this, do that, change this, change that. But, you know, we were acknowledging that music is moving. So it's moving when you listen to it and the human that receives it is moving too through their life, through their yes. emotional land, inner landscapes, through their, through their emotional slash spiritual territory. It's why all the big politicians want to use, keep on rocking in the free world so badly, <laughs> you know, uh, because they know or why Tony Blair you know, use that uh, D-Ream song. Things can um, only get better. Get only better, you know, because he knew nothing else was going to galvanize emotional sentiment to the same extent. I mean, God bless Picasso, God bless Van Gogh. But, you know, music is a whole another level of artistry, to my mind, you know, yes. that, that goes so fucking deep. When I heard The Barrel by... Aldous Harding, you know, it so begins the braiding, and in that braid you'll stay. I mean, uh, 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 you know, it's, I, we might as well die now. It's all said, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, so to me, I found it's not Joni Mitchell, it's not Neil Young, it's not Steve Ignorant, it's not. Echo belly. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't feel it's it's the creative spirit. They all know. Yes. You know, they none of the, even do even even you know, Prince used to Michael Jackson used to say, you know, if I don't write it down now, Prince will get it. It's in the ethers. Right. My God. It go. dances in our hearts, you know, and all we can do is say thank you, you know, and you only need one spiritual mantra, really. And that's thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for my heartbeat, this one and this one and this one and this one. Thank you for the apple. Thank you for the water. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the rivers. Thank you for the good times. Thank you for the bad times. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't need to be religious or spiritual as long as you remember to say thank you when you wake up. Because the minute you say, you stop saying thank you, the next album's going to be shit. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? It's the that, truth. It's the truth, yes. Well, absolutely. I mean, just briefly, <laughs> on your, on, on your <laughs> sort of, your, your, your last 20, did you, I mean, there's a lot of people I know, because I went through quite a hippie thing in the sort of 80s and 90s. Did you get into things like the five rhythms and dance as well? Or was I it... Got I got really, really into yoga. I did yoga every single day. I never skipped a day. I became a very sort of, I suppose, what you'd call physically a very advanced practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, and I started teaching all over the world. I taught in the States a few times. Me and my wife, we taught in Finland, in Denmark, in Portugal, in Bali, in Thailand, in uh, Denmark, in uh, Britain, in all over really um and 
I found what I was looking for, the same thing I found in Discharge and in that club underneath heaven, Deja Vu, yes. on my first pill and, uh, uh, you know, the, the feelings I got with dub with no... That dub, dub, Dub no bass with my head man and, uh, you know, all the great music I ever heard, I found it. So I didn't need to go anywhere else. Like when you fall in love, you know, I don't want another wife. You know, I got my, I got my, I didn't need another kid. I got my kid, you know, I'm, he's my guy. I don't need to flit around. Um, I done a lot of flitting around. And what I wanted to do is to be, you know, deeply faithful to one style of yoga, which is considered to be, a very, very ancient, authentic style of yoga. I spent years and years and years studying with the same guru in India, um, with his family, with the daughter and the grandson. I still call them my teachers and um, I'm very loyal, you know, and um, so I don't flit around really, because I did that in my music life, a right. lot of flitting around, but my spiritual life was really about, it's like if you if you're given a mantra, you don't sort of swap and change. You know, the power of the mantra is, you know, for for example, for the for the for the Buddhists, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. You don't sort of change after four <laughs> repetitions. Go, oh, I'm going to go and do a bit of five elements now. You know, it's 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 about how deep. Yeah. You know, and it's the same with music. It's the same with yoga. You dig deep until you hit the water or the gold, you know, you keep going, you have faith and the faith has to be real. Um, you say, oh, well, uh, you can't be sort of faith if, you know, it's David Barry singing it. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's got to be total. You've got to be 100%, it's not 99.9% .9 committed. It's got to be total and it's got to be real, you know, um, and, that's difficult in this day and age because we all have supermarket personalities that go, well, I'll try McVitie's hobnobs. But no, <laughs> now I fancy a Garibaldi. <laughs> you know, nobody's deep enough for it to be that meaningful. You know, so in my case, it's Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. I fell in love with this destructive principle because I saw the way that life was just constantly destroying everything that went before next 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 so what the the Hindu sort of pantheon or or, or there's a million gods in India everything's a god in India <laughs> they've got a monkey and an elephant and a this and a that and female gods that do this and male gods that do that you've got Vishnu who's the preserver that walks through time and space in great strides you've got Lakshmi who's abundance and wealth and health you've got Saraswati who's creativity you have Ganesh who is the lord of obstacles that removes and puts obstacles in your way so you learn to treat all of these emblems or these archetypes as therapists and you go to them as a you know an, a Welsh idiot who likes icons of filth and you say um you know I'm scared I'm disappointed I'm afraid I'm depressed I'm broke I'm sad I'm frightened. Um, and you have a kind of dialogue using mantras with these archetypal aspects of the human condition. 
that have been around a lot longer than me and you have, or any individual human. And then you get into a kind of relationship with this spectral uh, characterization of certain divine qualities within yourself. So the interesting thing about yoga and Indian philosophy, Vedanta, is that the Atman, which is the eternal aspect of the human and the creation at large, mm -hmm. is inside you. So it's not, you know, God in the clouds going, you're a bad man, Nick Evans. And I go, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. Um, it's it's it, your own heart is God. That's what God is. And, you know, I never heard that in my religious education class. That's something I had to go to India to find that. And that mirrored perfectly my experience in the midst of the cancer. Who's beating my heart? Where does that energy come from? Where's the same energy that said, why, 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 but why? Yes. Or wrote, you know, last time I saw Richard, or look at Mother Nature on the run. Yes. It's the same thing. And no true artist is stupid enough to think it's them that did it. They all know. It's the biggest secret of all. None of them will say, oh, I'm religious or anything. You listen to a few Noel Gallagher interviews about songwriting or Prince for that matter, or any of them. They all say the same thing. So I think I owed it to myself, you know, to keep going until I got to the source of the, the fountain. Don't give up till you get there. And it's easy to do that in India. It's where, you know, of course, lots of people have gone to India to do that. You know, obviously George Harrison and the Beatles yeah. were, the, were the, the big ones, but um, it was always okay for me because I loved Sergeant Peppers and I loved um, George Harrison. I liked, I liked his sensitivity and his um, guitar playing. Very so much. Did you, know. did you, did you um, over Christmas, subscribe to Disney Channel and watch the eight hours? I did, I did. I didn't, I, I subscribed, um, but mainly for The Mandalorian, for Morgan. But, uh, <laughs> but when that came along, um, I found it very touching, very powerful, very beautiful. It's amazing. Um, I love to see their friendship. I love to see the role that each one of them played in the creative process. I love to see who John Lennon actually was. I thought that was very interesting, who, who Paul McCartney was and how, in effect, Ringo facilitated them all being there. I thought it was incredible how sort of comfortable what Ringo was being silent and sort of how good he was at stopping the, the bus from going off the edge of the cliff. He kept kind of, because they all had pretty pretty big egos. They were all dealing with, I mean, they're all lovely guys by the looks of it. I don't know for sure, yeah. but from that, they all seemed like very, very sort of fun, very light, very creative, very kind guys. Um, and, and I really felt, you know, in a way, 
George was in some respects the most difficult because he wasn't getting the, the kind of recognition from the others that he felt like he deserved. And he, he adopted this spiritual persona. Um, McCartney was obviously the ubermensch who was sort of conducting the whole thing or, or certainly 80% of it. But it was interesting to me that, that you know, Paul couldn't really find a, a complete sense of validation unless finally Lennon turned around and went, you're right, Paul. Yes. That one's pretty good. You know, it's like nothing, nothing was good. You know, he, he couldn't do that for himself. He needed John. It was, it was a beautiful relationship between the two amazing, of them. Amazing, you know, and what a thing. Peter Jackson did such a great job of giving it a kind of narrative arc and, and a sense of pathos and this extraordinary kind of drama. It was just brilliant. I've yeah. still got it swishing around inside my psychic uh, body well I, I i think what was amazing was that i expected it you know because i thought oh is it going to get boring but i was more gripped and kept you know going back and watching another bit and another bit and then sort of thinking oh god it's going to get really depressing at the end but actually they were just getting going at the end <laughs> and that was like oh my god i can't believe <gasps> You know, it wasn't like, you know, watching yeah. the Titanic. This was like, but all you now need to do is book a venue like the Royal Albert Hall for a month and just play every, you know, just play for yeah. a month. You just want to rock because they yeah. had some stupid ideas about going on ships and stuff. But they yeah. just kind of were like, we just want to rock as a band. We just yeah. want to go out there. But, the, but the, I thought the most amazing thing for me was this idea of for the benefit of Mr. Kite, you know, we are not the Beatles anymore. We are... You know, Billy Spears, you know, and it's it was like this alter, alternate, like, you know, we're, we're not just going to be one band. Now we're going to be thousands of bands, you know, yes. we're going to be a different band every record. You know, you can't even recognise us now because we're in disguise, you know, <laughs> and they were just light, light years. And in fact, a friend of um, a friend of mine who I worked with at One Little Indian, who, um, who did me the honor of writing back and talking to me about the music business in the in the you know 2020s and and all that is Scott Rogers and Scott Rogers used to be managing uh, Bjork with Derek Bjork sorry with Derek um, but now manages Paul McCartney he managed the Arcade Fire um, for a while but now he's he's been Paul McCartney's manager for a long time now right and uh, he's another very sort of genuine sensitive guy you know who, who again you know took the time to respond to an old sad <laughs> uh, work colleague who'd made a record and yes I listened to it yes Nick it's going to be difficult to be honest but long long response to my did you listen <laughs> you know? yes. um, Scott Bloody Rogers you know is now probably the biggest manager in the world so there are friendships from the music business and I think if that Beatles film said anything it's that you know again love or friendship is the beating heart of creativity and you know to my mind the fact that Mark Cates posted a big thing on uh, uh, you know this is the guy that worked with Sonic Youth, Nirvana, Elastica, Beck, at Geffen he was their A&R man for a long time you know and he posted my record on his Facebook page and his Twitter saying this man changed my 
uh, understanding of music. He's made an extraordinarily beautiful record. Brian Long, um, who is also A&R at, uh, at Geffen, but also signed the Chemical Brothers at Astral Works and manages Jose Gonzalez and Bedouin and um, the Juan McLean and uh, a bunch of other people. All of them, Tav, um, Lawrence, they all kind of were so excited to engage with me about this ridiculous thing I was doing. You know, I, I mean, and to me that says that in the end, you know, musicians are collaborative. They make their best work when they're collaborating with their friends. Um, friendship is a key element to the magic. Love is a key element. Um, deep, deep sentiment. You know, when you're able to, to connect with a part of yourself that feels so strongly about your love for this man or this woman or, or this friend that you're jamming with. And I know that when I play with Matthias, and I just go there really easily, you know, and we play for every two weeks. This is the guitarist on my right. record. And we play and we don't talk very much. I just un unzip, we talk for a couple of minutes and then we just jam for an hour, an hour and a half, and then I leave. And the same, and the same with Anamone, who I, um, who I make music with, and all the musicians really, Danny that I used to make music with in Asturias in the north of Spain, who's in a great band called Lozone, who's singing French in Asturiano. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite new bands is a, a band called um, Sangre de Muerdago, who are living in Germany, but are in fact singing ancient Celtic Galician hymns and playing on ancient instruments uh, like zithers and all these amazing weird instruments. And me and Catty go and see them quite a lot. And they're all old Crass fans and Amoebics fans. And they're extraordinary. If you ever have a chance to listen to Shuntas, Juntas with an X by Sangre de Mordago. If that doesn't, I mean, I'm not sure it's gonna be your thing. It's very, very traditional Galician folk music, but it's extraordinary. There's a lot of people making very sort of alien Nordic folk music now that's closely connected to um, the dark folk metal scene. And I go, to I go to Roadburn quite a lot, which is just down the road. And I went to see David Tibetan Youth headline. I went to see Godspeed You Black Emperor headline. I went to see Neurosis headline. And I bought book their first European tour. Um, I had uh, a lovely lunch with... Um, uh, the guy from Amoebics who was in a band called Tau Cross, who you've interviewed and uh, subsequently has been accused of being a, uh, an awful um, anti-Semite. But um, he's the sword maker, isn't he? He's the sword maker, but he's a very, very, very sweet guy. So I was very shocked when suddenly he was um, he was uh, being called all these names because uh, he's, he's just lovely. But Roadburn is a scene. People travel from all over the world. I saw, I saw some fantastic things at Roadburn. And like I said, it wasn't just David Tibet and, um, and youth. It was dysphere. 
who are, you know, a discharge kind of um, D-beat band. It was <laughs> Sangre de Mordago playing dark apocalyptic folk. It was um, Earthless from San Diego playing kind of um, do, doing a um, doing doing an improvisational three hour set with Demo Suzuki from Cannes. You know, it's just it's the most extraordinary festival in the world now. For people who are interested in talking of the Bisto kids, Roadburn, I guarantee from anyone, even Richard, Richard, uh, what's his name? Richard Dawkin, Hawkin, Richard, no. You know, who, who's, who just made the album with Circle. Um, what's his name? Richard, uh, he's on Domino. Oh. He's fucking amazing. He's from Northumbria, he's from, where's he from? from Sunderland or Newcastle and his last few albums are the best. Oh yes. I, Richard, Richard, what's his name? Richard. Uh, I'm sure he's in my library somewhere. He's got, um, Oh God. Yes. But I, I, he was one of those Sheffield bands, wasn't he? Yeah. Who's, uh, he's really cool. And he played at Roadburn, but I got to find out his name. We, we have to. <laughs> Dude, we have to. Yeah, that would be I was gonna. I was going to run a list of all the people I'm listening to now, because um, I still make playlists and things on oh, Spotify. And do you know what? I do. I, I have one. I have one that I put out when the record came out called uh, um, Dawn Songs for the Dusk. And I have another one called The Philosopher's Window, which changes a little bit. They're, it's older music um, and cherry picked, but I have one called New Monsters and Friendly Ghosts, which is all my current listening. So it's not stuff I necessarily like, but now I sift, like I, I used to sift through the box of demos in the elemental. Um, so now I just sift every good review by every writer I love, every playlist by everybody whose opinion I care about, all my friends' tastes, and I just feed them through new monsters and friendly ghosts, and then delete ruthlessly as I discover they're not as good as Kate Le Bon or, um, I don't know, Sangre de Muertago or who else, but they're all decent. And let me see, Spotify, my library. I like Six Organs of Admittance. I love the last Waxahachie record. I love the war on drugs. Um, I liked Fleet Foxes for like 30 seconds. I love Midlake, you know Midlake? Yes. I like Midlake. I like Fortet. I love John Reese's new records, Plosives. That's really, really good. Um, uh, his solo record's great. I love Big Thief. They're fantastic. They deserve everything they get. I like, um, let me see. Let me see if I can say a couple of others that may, I like the new Tom York, The Smile. That's a good record. I don't so know which, you've got that. three, oh, you've got six playlists. So which is the one that you've got some of these very obscure bands that I not have a clue how you spell? Well, New Monsters and Friendly Ghosts is my current listening and it's changing all the time. It's got Hovdi, who I like a lot. Um, so if you want to listen to what I'm listening to in the car, Hovdi, Ho I mean, sorry, New Monsters and Friendly Ghosts. That's, um, that's sort of my most up-to-date playlist. But the ones that have some of my favorite songs of all time where I'm trying to, that's The Philosopher's Window. Fantastic. And it's also Dawn Songs for the Dusk. 
They're both quite long, but you might enjoy them. They've got astronaut songs and AC Temple and, I mean, Beth Orton or, you know, all sorts of people from all different, but they're not too obvious, but they're very listenable. I'm not really, I love Sonic Youth. They're one of the greatest live bands I ever saw. I love, but I'm not into Discordia for the sake of Discordia. I love melody. Yes. I love pretty melodies, but I love pretty melodies and then sort of fucking them up. <laughs> but not to the extent that it sacrifices the purity of the melody. Yes, this is um, true. You don't so any, you know, I hope I haven't just gone on and on no and no on that's been fine on on. so so this might be tricky to answer but i mean if you could have said something to your like 16 year old self starts now and you thought god yeah if someone could have just whispered something in my ears i just went off on this incredible incredible journey is there anything that in particular that you might have thought yeah that would have been quite good i would have loved it if punishment of luxury as had been as big as devo <laughs> no <laughs> sorry um I would have said, never give up the dream. Never betray yourself. Never give up the dream. Don't live for other people, you know? Always stay true to your dream. You know, it's uh, because you won't be able to live with yourself otherwise. Yes. So it's that kind of thing, which I've heard other people say. Um, but, you know, life will try and get you to give up your dream to stop looking for the smell of the Bisto, you know? The Bisto, I like the Bisto, actually. Yeah. Is there one book that you often turn to or had a massive influence on your life? Yeah, there is. There is. Um, God, I, I mean, it's a very difficult, I have to say, you know, um, it's this, really. But, you know, then I'm getting, you know, I loved my my magpie eyes are hungry for the prize, the Alan, yeah. the Alan McGee uh, biography. You know, I thought that was a really great read. And I love Ted Kessler's book that he just published, you know. But this, where is it? Talks with Ramana Maharshi. Right. Of, of all of the, um, of all of the spiritual stuff, of all the, I mean, that really does take you, Look, you can even see what it says. If you can read that backwards. Thoughts is all pure gold. It's from the heart. It's, it's, he was one of, he's one of India's greatest ever sages or spiritual teachers, you know, and he lived in a mountain in the south of India called Arunachala. And people from all over the world went there to visit him. He died a long time ago. I never met him, but I've been there. And of all the sort of spiritual, um, of all the spiritual teachers, he's the one that I've been sort of carrying close. You know, I never grew out of it. It never stopped, you know, it never seemed anything less than coming from a place of pure love, you know, pure, pure love and kindness and empathy compassion for the human condition, the frailty of the human condition. So it's a very interesting, it's yeah. one of those books you can pick up for 30 years and it will never, it will never let you down, you know? So anyway, and my wife also is very fond of uh, Catty's really 
really. And so we share that in common. You know, I'm not, we're not weird cult people. <laughs> it's, <laughs> sort of, it's, it's all within the framework. But also just back to, um, also just back to, it's always been more about music for me, really. You know, when I'm sort of lost and sad, if I go back to music, you know, so music's the only thing that really does the trick. Yes, this is true. It is. It, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's the only thing. It's the only thing that uh, it takes the pain away, as Peaches said, "fucks the pain away." You know, like Peaches, that. the teachers of Peaches. <laughs> She's cool, Peaches. Yes, my God, this is amazing. Look, yes. this. Well, this yeah, is being. I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to keep to keep going, you know. <laughs> I, I like Joe. I'm listening to Joan Shelley. I like the new Michael Head. You know Michael Head from Shack. Yes, that's a good God. record. Dear Scott, he's got some really nice songs on there. That's strong. Um, couple more before I go. Let's see if I can uh, plug a couple of other great. Uh, I was sad to see Mark Lanigan go. Yes, I wasn't. Was... I wasn't the hugest fan of Mark Lanigan, but I, that, that I like "Sweet Oblivion" by the Screaming Trees. That's one of my favourite grunge records. That's never really died for me. Um, I, I, I really love to listen to Fortet. You know, I never get tired of Fortet. Fortet's always pushing, you know, the remnants of Acid House forward into new shapes. I was very sad when Fortet and Lawrence fell out. I thought, you know, they're both fabulous people and it was a real shame to see them sort of um dissolve i always listen to ben chasney and six organs of admittance i always listen to david tibet and current 93 for the lyrics um he's never disappointed me lyrically um i really love the fact that uh, the war on drugs took sort of widespread um you know pompous uh hideous springsteen-esque rock and filtered it through noi and turned it into the most fantastic hip music stadium modern stadium rock uh, i love rosie plain do you know rosie plain from bristol no fucking extraordinary um katia my wife's favorite band ever is low she oh, never yes. stops listening to Low. Um, and so I love Low because of her. I love Nathan Salzberg, who just did a, did a fantastic album of um, amazing sort of Judaic guitar pieces. He's an incredible guitar guitarist. I still look at John Mulvey's recommendations in the Mojo playlist. That's a very strong, I think, whipped by Bonnie Pint, Prince Billy is one yes. of my favorite alt country songs ever written. Still touches my heart. Dig out Whipped by Johnny Bonnie Prince Billy. And what will I finish with? Did you like that album? In, I think it was him. Did I can I can see a darkness. Oh, ama fucking amazing. And ease on down the road and master and everyone. That is regal, Bonnie Prince Billy. That's when he was one of the greats. And in my opinion, since then, it's never really. I like listening to the new Guided by Voices records when they come along. Um, I don't love them, but he's in his 50s. He still makes a record every year. Who's that? Robert Pollard, Guided by Voices. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Um, I'll always listen. 
I'll always listen to Amen Dunes. Do you know Amen Dunes? No. They're on, they're on Sacred Bones Records. He's he's a fucking genius. And Freedom by Amen Dunes and Designer by Aldous Harding are probably my two favorite records of the last 10 years. Um, with a few others following close up behind. But you know, I could go on all night. Well, I'll play so, I'll check out your playlist. Yeah, this I is will. I, I love I love Aruj Aftab, who's the um, the Indian singer that won gra Grammys recently, and very very beautiful, very beautiful. She's in there. You'll find her in one of my playlists. So uh, there's a song called Mohobat, which is where all my love of India and yoga and all my love of contemporary cutting edge music kind of blend perfectly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will touch the feet of Amen Dunes and Aldous Harding um, until something better comes along. This is and, great. So, New yeah. Monsters and Friendly Ghosts, this is the yeah. one. Yeah, but it, like I say, that's changing constantly. So I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that's what I'm listening to to find stuff that's good. That's one level of the filtration system. If you want, if you want another level of the filtration system is the Philosopher's Window. Right. And because those are actually songs that I'm, you know, devoted to. And before that, when I was trying to explain to people what my record was, I did Dawn Songs for the Dusk. And, and Dawn Song was my name. I was christened Dawn Song by David Tibet. And so if I make another record, it'll be Dawn Song. And I'm hoping in the way that Badly Drawn Boy is referred to as badly drawn boy that one day if anyone ever gives a a shit about my record they'll say oh i know that dawn song guy yes that's yeah no, god that's that's a great collection on dawn songs for the dusk yeah it's, love you dude it's i been love great to great to I, talk to you i mean bob mold sunspots yeah that's a that's a classic record that's that a classic was... workbook workbook is where i really you know, united spiritually with Bob Mould. I love everything he's done, mostly, but uh, but that record changed me. Yeah, there's a there's an acoustic guitar instrumental track oh, on there. Sunspots. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. And yeah, in this lonely room, Jesus. Oh, that, yeah, it's it's heart wrenching. It is heart. It's but I, yeah, I mean. I love Grant Hart too. I love that Grant Hart first Grant Hart solo records, beautiful too. Yes, but I noticed that the bass player has just had prostate cancer, and he's just oh, and he's just released a new record. Has he? I just yeah, I, he's got I, a super group. He's got a very punk. Greg uh, Norton, you mean? Greg, yeah, that's the oh, one. Oh, I didn't know he had prostate cancer though. That's sad. so he's just either had the operation or he's having treatment. So um. Well, that's sad. Let's um But let's he looks good. He's still got his Oh, his mustachio. Yeah. <laughs> let's send him some blessings and We're love. We're going to send him lots yeah. of love because yeah, he's just him. a beautiful man. Well, people get through it and I'm living proof. So um yes. and my life force is strong, you know, so um I don't regret a moment. Yes, well I'll have to um yeah. Yes. Well, look, this has been amazing. Do keep yeah. in touch. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to. I'd like to. You're I'll very send. sweet. And that's why I wanted to do it. You know, I turned <laughs> down all the yoga people that say, will you do an interview? I always say no, because uh, I don't want to, you know, the Tao, 
that can be spoken is not the ancient Tao, you know? So if I'm gonna speak, I will speak to someone who, who loves music from the very, very, very pits of their being, which it's clear to me that you do, you know? It's yes. very, tu very touching. So but luckily I got that guy, the daft bloody guy, I think it's, I managed to get an interview with him. Oh, so well done, well I know. done. And yeah. that was so, because I remember him on the, the John Peel show during the 80s. Yeah. John was just playing all those Welsh bands. Yeah, that's and right. And Daft Bluggy. Vidliad, Arandrefen. I know them all. I know. Rhys Mewn from Arandrefen still is a great, uh, a great inspiration to me. You know, and they had Andrefen records, and I think the Welsh scene that we all know now from Gorkies and Super Furries and that whole thing, it all came from Reese, really. Reese is the seed that made Welsh people feel proud of their language and proud of their culture and proud of their creativity and not ashamed to be Welsh anymore. It wasn't the Mannix, it wasn't Catatonia, it was Reese. Yeah, no, that was a gold, that was a great period. I remember recording John Peel's show and it had Daft Bluggy that had, he was playing Ivor Cutler, the Bundu Boys, you know, early yeah, hip hop. Amazing. It was just, you know, he curated yeah. those God shows. Flesh. God flesh in the God middle flesh. of it all. You only, just feel like, ah, what's happening now, John? The only time I met, I met John. him too, I met him. He was lovely. He gave tr Truman's Water, he gave all my band sessions. In fact, last story. Can I tell the last yes, story? Tell I'm so sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I, I'm excited. I won't get to tell these stories again, but I started Elemental Records. I moved down from Leeds to London and I was in bed in Ferndale Road. Um, we were sharing a flat with Jules from uh, Julie Dalkin from Dan, um, who, who, who was just an amazing woman and, um, and, I was listening to John Peel and I was waiting for John Peel to start. And I just released my first record, which was the big CEP by Crane from Ashington in uh, Northumberland. And it was the first song he played, uh, the, the Colorblind. And he said, it was the first song he played and he gave it an absolutely glowing review. And it was, it was the opening song, which was always a big thing, you know, and it was one of the proudest moments of my life. And I lay in bed kind of weeping, you know, because it was a dream come true. And after that, he must have given, I would say 70% of the bands I worked with got a Peel session. And I met him at a Truman's Water gig in wherever the hell it was. I can't remember, Norwich, I, I can't remember, I can't remember where it was, but one of these things. And, uh, and I said, oh, do you like Drive Like Jehu? And he said, they're all right, but Truman's Water are oh, fucking amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, they, he said they were his favorite band, you know, so. Amazing. I don't know, I don't know, but. Uh, still nice. Very it's grateful, still... very grateful. I, yeah. I, only, I only met him once, that was at Ipswich in the Caribbean center, and it was, Napalm Death and Extreme Noise Terror, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Was he sweet with you? Well, he, it was so loud that, you know. Oh, just... <laughs> okay, okay. He, was, he was very sweet to me. He was a polite guy, you know. He didn't seem to want to. And he rang me a lot because a lot of the bands I was booking tours for and John Walters when I was in Leeds in my squat, um, I'd get phone calls from them fairly regularly. I booked, we had Peel Sessions with Fire Party, with... Um, maybe the nation of Ulysses with um, uh, Alice Donut, Victim's Family, all of these old, hard, weird, weird, hardcore bands, brilliant bands. And um, yeah, he would always call and say, I hear you've got 
So I had a lot, a lot of dealings with them, really. Golden, golden times. Yeah, amazing, amazing. But uh, yeah, I touch your lotus feet. And um, yes. God bless you. Take, Take care. care. Look after yes. yourself. I will. Never lose that feeling, baby. We won't. We'll be rocking. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to your playlist, actually. <laughs> okay. Take I hope care. you enjoy. Give me some feedback and tell me what you think of my record one day. If you have I a will. chance to listen to it, I, I would give... love to get some feedback from you, but no obligation. But if you feel it, the inclination. I'll I'll be I'll be right on it. I'll be okay. right on it. Okay, look, God Lots bless. Take care. Take care. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's me in conversation with Nick Evans, talking about life, love, poetry and everything else. Anyway, fantastic interview. And um, yes, indeed. Anyway, this is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these uh, interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, and I think a few others. But anyway, that's fine. Have a great week. Stay safe.